brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus everything is going to hell down here in texas What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode number 200 of the Lone Gummin Podcast. This is your host, Rob Clark, with you again, of course. Who else would it be? Ain't no guest host on this show. It's just me, your boy, Big Bad Bobby. And on this landmark, epic, monster sized show that I've got for you here today I figured you know it's got to be special this is the 200th episode I've been doing this shit for 8 years and I'm only here because of you guys your continued support to reach out with words of encouragement and your thoughts and your ideas and uh, it's what keeps me going and why I'm still doing this. Uh, not to mention, I still haven't figured this shit out yet. So, <laughs> until I do, I'll be here with you on the Lone Gunman Podcast. Can't believe episode 200, eight years in the books. Whew, it's crazy to think about. But today, Hey, Al, don't bogard that joint, my friend. We're going to take a deep dive into the lives of the mysterious goings-on in and around the downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership in Dallas, Texas in November of 1963. And it's going to surprise you. It's going to wow you. You're going to be like, what the hell is going on here? Well, <laughs> it's a crazy story, folks. I'm not going to lie. And uh, I think I got a good one here for episode 200. So kick back, relax, and enjoy 
the show. Now, the story I'm about ready to tell you all is the uber catalyst for the two Oswald or Oswald double theories uh, that are out there and have plagued this case since the very beginning. Uh, not to mention impersonators. You know, we have several instances of Oswald allegedly being in two places at once, which, of course, can happen. And a lot of this has to do with mistaken identity. Um, but this story is a little different. You see, this story, the man who came into the Lincoln Mercury dealership to test drive a vehicle, used the name specifically, Lee Oswald. <laughs> it wasn't a case of, hey, I saw this guy, and damn, if he didn't look like that guy on TV that shot that other guy, or they got shot by that other guy, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Looked just like him. It's not a case of mistaken identity. Folks, this is a clear case of either impersonation or, 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 this was Lee Harvey Oswald, despite supposedly supposed to being somewhere else. Now, the story in itself of what I'm about to tell you is fascinating enough. But just wait until we get into the lives of the individuals that actually worked at the downtown Lincoln Mercury. But well, let's start it off, okay? And I have an FBI document dated 11-23-63. So this is the day after the assassination, Saturday. And what's interesting to me <laughs> is the, the name on this FBI document that took this, or that made this report. Excuse me. Um, because <laughs> it always tells you there at the bottom, you know, on eleven twenty three sixty three at Dallas, Texas, gives you the file number and by a special agents Manning C. Clements and Warren C. Debris. Date dictated eleven twenty three sixty three. Now, what's interesting about this beings that. Warren DeBreeze's name is at the bottom of this document as having taken or done, done, filed this report the day after the assassination, folks. Warren DeBreeze was stationed in New Orleans at that FBI office, not Dallas. So why, out of all... The FBI agents in Texas who who could have came and helped out the FBI in Dallas. Why, oh why, is Warren DeBreeze in Dallas? Now, if you go back and you look at Warren DeBreeze's HSCA testimony and also that of Arrest Pena, you will see quite clearly 
why Warren DeBreeze is in Dallas. The reason he's in Dallas is because Lee Harvey Oswald has been arrested in the murder of the president of the United States. That's why. And when you read Orest Pena's uh, HSCA testimony, you will understand why Warren DeBreeze is in Dallas. And he's even asked about this, you know, why'd you go to Dallas? When were you in Dallas? You know, this is the day after the assassination folks. It wasn't like he, uh, it wasn't like he was called down a week later, you know, to help clean up the mess and process evidence and all, and all that and interview witnesses. No, this is the day after the assassination. The day after. So let's get it kicked off here. Al Albert G. Bogard, a salesman at downtown Lincoln Mercury of 118 East Commerce Street, residence 304 Brighton, advised as follows. At about 3 to 4 p.m. Saturday, November the 9th, 1963, a young man came to the automobile showroom walking and alone, stating that he was interested in a car. Bogard said he introduced himself and asked a prospective customer his name about twice before the individual gave his name as Lee Oswald. Bogard said he seemed to recall Oswald said he had previously looked at a Rambler and Plymouth automobiles, although he could not be certain. He said he showed Oswald every car in the showroom and on the lot. Following which he took Oswald back inside in an effort to close with him. At this time, Oswald said he had no money, but that he would have money in a couple or three weeks. Bogard said he suggested a down payment and tried to find out where Oswald intending, intended his money would come from. Oswald replied, I've got it coming. He was particularly interested in a two-door Mercury hardtop, which sells for about $3,000. Oswald asked for a demonstration ride. Bogard said he and Oswald got in a demonstration car with Oswald driving. That Oswald drove to Industrial Boulevard, south on Industrial, about two or three blocks, made a U-turn, and proceeded north on Industrial and then to Stemmons Freeway. He drove out Stemmons at a rapid rate of speed, up to 75 to 85 miles per hour, to the Inwood Road exit to the right, back to the left under the freeway, and again to the left and enter the freeway where he proceeded in a southeasterly direction. Oswald continued on Stemmons Freeway to R.L. Thornton Freeway, turned to the right at the Colorado Avenue exit and made a left back under the freeway, and then back up on the freeway and proceeded in a northwesterly direction. At a point where Oswald had a chance of continuing on the freeway, which would mean bearing to the left, he started to go straight toward Caddis Street. Bogard called his attention to the fact that the car had little gasoline in it, whereupon Oswald turned back onto industrial and then to the automobile concern. Bogard said he again approached Oswald on the proposition of a down payment 
stating he could proceed with a credit check. Oswald declined that, stating he would pay cash. He would not give his address, but said he lived in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas. He said, as he recalled, Oswald wore no coat or tie and was believed dressed in a sweatshirt, was bareheaded, as in no hat, and did not look like a $3,000 car man. Bogard said he wrote Oswald's name, Lee Oswald, on the reverse side of one of his, Al Bogard's, business cards. He related that on November the 22nd, 1963, he heard the name of Oswald on a radio newscast and recognized the name as that of his prospective customer. He said he remarked on this to others and pulled a number of cards out of his pocket, selected the card with Oswald's name on it, and threw it in the waste paper basket. He said he saw Oswald's picture on television and confirmed that this was the same individual who had come to his place of business, business on November the 9th, 1963, but who had never returned to his knowledge. He stated Oswald did not enter into any conversation except as to the car, and he observed no unusual actions. Bogard remarked that he had been in Dallas for a short time only and that Oswald appeared much more familiar with the streets than is he. Agents requested Bogard to travel the same route that Oswald had driven. Agents observed this route carried Bogard and Oswald on Stemmons Expressway on a portion of the route traveled by President Kennedy's motorcade and that the site of the proposed luncheon for Mr. Kennedy was on this route. A total distance of some 13 miles was traveled. It was observed that the Texas School Book Depository Building is within sight of downtown Lincoln Mercury showroom, perhaps three-fourths of a mile distant. Upon return to the motor company, agents asked Bogard to attempt to locate his business card on which he had written the name of Oswald. He stated trash had been picked up by the janitor and placed in a large receptacle to the rear of the building, somewhat inaccessible uh, for a thorough search. Uh, he did not locate the card. Hmm. So that's the story of Al Bogard and the Oswald test drive. Now what's interesting to note here, folks, is that Oswald said that he was familiar with Ramblers and Plymouth. <laughs> and of course, this is before the great allegation of Roger Craig and the Nash Rambler sighting that supposedly picked up Lee Oswald uh, from the School Book Depository and which Ruth Payne drove a similar uh, model to the Nash Rambler. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, Lee Harvey Oswald didn't have a driver's license. He didn't drive. Ruth Payne was giving him driving lessons, right? Well, how many things that come out of Ruth Payne's mouth do you believe? You're telling me that a uh, 22, 23-year-old man, 24-year-old man wasn't capable of driving a vehicle? Had never learned how to drive a vehicle? 
was in the military but didn't know how to drive a vehicle was in Russia but didn't know how to drive a vehicle grew up in New Orleans not knowing how to drive a vehicle nobody he knew had a vehicle the Moretz didn't have a vehicle I mean look folks driving is not that hard you basically have to know how to work the car or work a car you stick the key in, you turn it. This one's the brake, this one's the gas, and this is the steering wheel. If you want to move forward, you need to put the car in drive. When you want to park, you put the car in the park. Reverse is reverse. It's not rocket science. I mean, I'm pretty sure a chimpanzee could probably figure out how to drive a car if you showed them. Huh. Um... And of course, you know, Oswald grown up seeing, watching uh, television and movies, which vehicles are in, and I'm sure observed many on the street driving around. It, it's it's not that difficult. You know, in fact, you know, nowadays we entrust 15-year-olds to operate motor vehicles. You know, I've, I've driven my, well, I guess he was 14 then, but we go up. You know, to the local school in the big old parking lot. And, you know, one time I showed him, okay, here, put the car in the gear. This is your brake. This is your gas. This is the steering wheel. Rock on. And literally my 14-year-old figured it out in about five minutes. You know, it's not. Unless you were severely mentally retarded and not capable of grasping concepts which I don't think Lee Oswald was um, you know it's not out of the realm of possibility that uh, he could definitely drive um, now <laughs> were his claims that he was going to come into some money in a couple three weeks just some boisterous claims um you know, when a, a man doesn't have a lot, and I'll tell you, look, folks, I am in my late 40s, and I've never owned a brand new vehicle, ever, ever, ever. Would it be nice? Sure. Yeah, it'd be nice to drive a brand new vehicle. You know, I've never owned a a two-door sports coupe. Well, I'll take that back. Um, does a Ford Tempo count, Doug? Um, probably not, but closest thing to a Mustang I can figure out here. But I've never had a muscle car, per se. Would I like to have one? Sure. Would I like to drive one? Hell yeah, who wouldn't? You know? So... You know, one day if I'm bored, you know, I, and I've done this, you go to the dealership and say, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, getting this car, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, off you go test drive just to see what it feels like to be behind the wheel of that vehicle. Knowing you're never going to buy it. Knowing you never could buy it, but 
just to experience that for a half an hour. You know, it's just something guys do. You know? At least I've done it. My friends have done it. You know, I'd like to think we've all done it at one point with no intention of ever buying the vehicle. Is this something Oswald did one day because he was bored? You know, he took this vehicle out, drove it. Um, just to feel the rush. Just, you know, I mean, he's going 75 down the freeway, 85. Just, just one time to feel that rush. You know? I don't know. It's interesting to think about, though. The other option is that Al Bogart is full of shit. And Lee Oswald never came into his place of business. And never test drove a car. And never left his name or intention. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This would mean that the day after the assassination, Al Bogard was looking for some attention and decided to make up a story about the accused assassin of the United States or the accused assassin of the president of the United States um, who is still very much alive on 11-23-63. But I don't think that's the case. Frank Pizzo the assistant manager of the downtown Lincoln Mercury at 118 Commerce Street, residence 800 Burns, stated during the afternoon of November 22, 1963, he heard the name of Lee Oswald on a radio newscast in connection with the latter's arrest as a suspect in the assassination of President Kennedy. He said he recognized the name and asked Al Bogard if he did not have a prospect of that same name. Bogard stated that he had, in fact, and after discussion and on viewing newspaper photographs of Oswald on the 23rd, he recognized him as an individual who had been in the showroom some several days previously who had talked to Mr. Bogard. He recalled Bogard had remarked on the extended demonstration ride Oswald had taken. He said he had not seen this individual again to the best of his knowledge. This was taken 11-23-63 at Dallas, Texas by Manning Clements and Warren DeBreeze. So, not only do we have Al Bogard of the downtown Lincoln Mercury, we have Frank Pizzo, the assistant manager of the dealership, corroborating his story, folks. 
only Mr. Pizzo's recommend or recollection was a couple several days before the assassination, right? Now time is a funny thing. A couple weeks, a couple days. Hmm. I don't know. Don't know. Could Bogart have gotten the date wrong? Sure. It's quite a possibility. But that's not all. Not all, folks. Mr. Oren Paul Brown of Waxahachie, Texas, advised he formerly he was formerly employed as an automobile salesman for downtown Lincoln Mercury. Now this was this statement was taken on December the eleventh, sixty-three. So I guess they're following up on. Excuse me, Bogart and Pizzo's story. So they tracked this guy down, and he is presently working as a trainee at the Fine or Fina service station, 2681 Royal Lane in Dallas. And as soon as the Fina service station at Stemmons Expressway and Inwood Road is completed, he will be employed as a manager at that location. While working for downtown Lincoln Mercury, one night about a week or two before President Kennedy was assassinated, Brown was scheduled to be on duty that night. Another salesman, Al Bogard, came by and told him he had a prospect for the sale of a car by the name of Lee Oswald. Bogard said that Oswald had been looking into, at cars but didn't have enough money for a down payment and was supposed to come back when he got some money. Bogard asked Brown to take care of Oswald if he came in when he wasn't there and they would split the commission of if the car was sold. Brown then wrote the name Lee Oswald down on something and thought he wrote the name down on the back of one of Brown's cards. No one named Oswald came in, and he totally forgot about the matter uh, until on the afternoon of November 22, 1963. After Kennedy had been killed, he came into work about 3 p.m., and Bogard remarked to him that Lee Oswald had been arrested in connection with the assassination. Bogard then said Oswald was the name of the guy I was going to sell the car to, and I gave you his name as a prospect. Bogard also reminded Brown that when Bogard was talking to Oswald at the downtown Lincoln Mercury, Brown started to walk into the office where Bogard and Oswald were talking. But Brown walked away when he noticed that Bogard had a customer. Brown said he thought he remembered this incident, but didn't pay any attention to the customer Bogard was talking to, and definitely could not identify this customer. Brown stated he has seen the photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald in newspapers and on television, uh, and he could not say that he had ever seen Lee Harvey Oswald before. However, Brown was positive that Bogard gave him the name of Lee Oswald as a prospective customer a week or two before President Kennedy was assassinated. When Brown got home on the evening of November 22, 63, his wife asked him what he knew about Oswald. telling him she had seen the name of Oswald on a piece of paper among his effects. He told her that this was a prospective customer and that he had written the name on one of his cards. They both looked around the house but could not find the card or the piece of paper with the name of Oswald on it. On November 23, 63, Bogard told Brown that he was sure that Lee Harvey Oswald, or he was sure that the Lee Harvey Oswald he had seen on television 
was the same Oswald that had been in to see him about buying a car. So here we have further corroboration from another employee of the downtown Lincoln Mercury. His recollection a week or two before the assassination. So we go from Bogards, November 9th, which would put 14, that'd be a little, a day under two weeks from the assassination to uh, Orrin Brown, a week or two before the assassination, which kind of rings true mm-hmm. to the timeline here. So very interesting stuff, you know, that, uh, you know, Bogart was covering his, his tracks by even going back and telling his buddy, hey, man. If this guy Oswald comes in here to buy this car when I'm not here, I'll split the commission with you. Just take care of the guy, complete the sale, and I'll split the commission with you. You know, a $3,000 car in 1963 was a, a lot of money, folks. A lot of money. Um, So, Bogart was definitely one to get his hands on a piece of that $3,000 sale, whether he was there or not. Next up, another employee of the downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership. This one, a Jack Lawrence. And maybe you've heard that name before. Uh, I believe we discussed him on a very, very early episode of the Loon Gumman podcast, but it's time to revisit this statement from December the 13th, 1963. Taken by Special Agents John Woodruff and Leon Graben at South Charleston, West Virginia. Folks, Jack Lawrence, who is presently staying at the home of his parents-in-law at 144 10th Avenue, South Charleston, was advised that he was being contacted in connection with a phone call he had made to the Dallas, Texas Office of the FBI the day after the assassination of President Kennedy. So we have Jack Lawrence calling the FBI the day after the assassination. Mr. Lawrence was asked what he knew about Jack Ruby, and he said he knew nothing about this man, had never seen him, and had no contact in any way with him. He said he had heard a great deal about him, which was all secondhand and which was general knowledge around Dallas, He said he had heard that Ruby was a close friend of the sheriff of Dallas County, as well as a close friend of newspaper people, especially since he was in the office of the Dallas Morning News at the time of the assassination. He said he had also heard that Ruby knew members of the Dallas police very well. He said all of this was all of this he had heard after the shootings and that none of it was firsthand knowledge to him. Mr. Lawrence was asked what he knew about Lee Harvey Oswald. And he said he had never known or seen this man and had never heard of him until his arrest after the assassination. He said that he had called the FBI in Dallas because of an incident which occurred and about which those who knew of it firsthand would not report the same. And he felt that all such information should be reported. He said that he called the FBI right in front of those involved. And as a result, his leaving his employment in Dallas at the downtown Lincoln Mercury company was speeded up and occurred the same day he made the call okay so 
the day after the assassination. A lot of people are reporting things uh, at the downtown Lincoln Mercury, and Jack Lawrence is one of them. However, doing this accelerated the process of his leaving or losing his job the day after the assassination. Mr. Lawrence said that right after the assassination of President Kennedy and the arrest of Oswald, the assistant sales manager, Frank Pizzo, and a salesman, Al Bogard, talked about Oswald being in there about 10 days before. All right, so we got a week or two, 10 days. We're staying with the timeline here. He was looking at a $3,500 Comet, Mercury Comet Caliente sports car, fully equipped. He took one of these cars as a demonstrator belonging to salesman Gene Wilson for a test drive. This drive took place along the same route when President Kennedy came to Dallas and covered the route where he was assassinated. At the same time, the salesman wrote up papers covering the sale of this car to Oswald. But he told him that he was not taking the car at that time, but he would be back in three weeks to get the car and he would pay for it in full in cash. Mr. Lawrence said he knew nothing further about Oswald, but felt this should be reported to the FBI, even though the others would not report it. So it says here that he reported this in front of Al Bogard and in front of Frank Pizzo. So I wonder if Jack Lawrence was the catalyst for the FBI going to interview Bogard and Pizzo or whether it was Bogart and Pizzo who contacted the FBI. Interesting. Mr. Lawrence said that in January of 1959, he was in the service, and at that time, Castro was overthrowing the government in Cuba. He said he and others in the service were very much in favor of Castro's actions, and they wanted to go down and help him. But he said that he was not discharged from the service until it was too late to go down and do any good. He said that now he is glad he did not help Castro because he no longer favors what he has done or what he stands for. He said he is opposed to what Castro stands for now. It would not help him under any circumstances. So interesting that Jack Lawrence feels the need to throw in an anti-Castro sentiment in his FBI report. Um, Yeah. So, I find it hard to believe three or four guys um, that worked at a car dealership, a local Dallas respected car dealership, would make up a story about Lee Oswald like this. And I think the FBI did too. On November the 27th in 1963, the Washington field office advised that on November the 26th, now this is after Oswald is killed, Robert Johnson, chief counsel of the passport office, Department of State, informed Special Agent Kenneth Hazer that a National Broadcasting Corporation, or NBC representative, made telephonic inquiry that date seeking to identify from passport files one Jack Lawrence of Dallas, born about 1939 an alleged associate of Jack Ruby. 
that passport files were negative and no additional information had been located regarding Lawrence. On November 28, 63, Tom Pettit, NBC correspondent, informed Special Agent Joseph Abernathy of the Dallas field office that he was leaving for New York and stated he had recorded a lengthy interview with Al Bogard, a salesman at downtown Lincoln Mercury Commerce and Industry Dallas. This interview concerned Oswald's having come in to look at new cars some two weeks earlier and Oswald's being permitted to test drive a new Comet. Pettit quoted Bogard as stating that Jack Lawrence, a former salesman for downtown Lincoln Mercury, had considerable additional information in this regard. The following investigation was conducted by Special Agents Tom Chapotin and Alan Smith at Dallas, Texas. On December the 5th, 63, Frank Pizzo, the assistant sales manager, stated that Jack Lawrence was hired as a salesman on October 22nd, 63. He was let go on November the 23rd, 63, after another salesman, Bob Teeter, had told him that Lawrence had received a bad conduct discharge from one of the military services because he had tried to help Fidel Castro when Castro first became or first began to fight Batista in Cuba. Mr. Pizzo made available an application of Lawrence with the Liberty Mutual Insurance Company for a bond, which had been executed in connection with his employment. Following information was taken from the application. Jack Allen Carroll Lawrence Address YMCA 605 Irve, Dallas, Texas Date of birth 9-14-38 Social Security number Previous employment I've been at a Sears and Roebuck in Charleston, West Virginia as a salesperson, unemployed during the first five months of 63. Before that, he was with Forsyth Advertising under William Forsyth at Fort Lauderdale, Florida, company now defunct. Before that, he was with the Electronics Communications Incorporated in St. Petersburg, Florida. Before that, he was worked at Morrison's Cafeteria, Central Avenue, St. Petersburg, Florida. And he gives some references uh, from folks, various folks. Mr. Pizzo said that Lawrence had applied as a result of an advertisement and had related he had been stranded in Dallas when his car broke down and he had to sell the car. On December 6th, Joe McCree, secretary, YMCA Dallas, stated that Jack Lawrence uh, checked in on October the 6th to the YMCA, 1963, October 6th, folks, and checked out on November 30th, 63, leaving forwarding addresses Jack Lawrence, 144 10th Avenue, South Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, he occupied room 811 during this time. Mr. McCree was not, a, was not acquainted with Lawrence and knew of no one else who was. On December the 7th, 63, Robert Teeter, a used car salesman for the Eagle Lincoln Mercury at Lemon Avenue, stated that he had formerly been employed as a salesman for downtown Lincoln Mercury and had met Jack Lawrence during his employment since Jack Lawrence was also a salesman. On one occasion, date not remembered, but which was prior to the assassination of the president, he and Lawrence had gone out together one evening and had a few drinks. 
He could not recall any of the details of their conversation during this evening out, but said he did remember Lawrence telling him he had gotten a bad conduct discharge when he tried to help Fidel Castro when Castro first began to fight Batista in Cuba. He said he did not remember other statements made by Lawrence, but did recall Lawrence had been very emphatic about some of his ideas. Teeter said that this had come to his attention because somebody at downtown Lincoln Mercury had recognized Oswald as having been in that agency to see about a car and all. The ensuing publicity about Oswald being an admirer of Castro. Teeter said the last he heard, Lawrence had gone back to Charleston, West Virginia, where his wife was. Previous interviews with Mrs. Ruth Payne have indicated that Lee Harvey Oswald did not leave her residence where he stayed with his wife Marina for a period of time long enough for him to have taken a demonstration ride on November the 9th, 1963, as related by Al Bogard on re-interview on January the 24th, 64. So, some of the important dates around this time, folks, <laughs> is that, uh, we have Jack Lawrence coming to Dallas and living at the YMCA for a little while. Actually, a long while while he's in Dallas. Um, we have Lee Harvey Oswald uh, supposedly staying at the YMCA around this time. And also, Lawrence Hall and Lauren, Lauren Hall and Lawrence Howard, and uh, William Seymour, staying at the YMCA in Dallas at about the same time. Interesting to note that Jack Lawrence is approximately the same age as Lee Harvey Oswald, um, and allegedly. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, got a bad conduct discharge for wanting to help Fidel Castro in the late 50s. Now, this period of time is also when Jack Ruby is alleged to have been uh, running guns and jeeps to Castro in Cuba to support him in his overthrow of Batista. And they're interesting that they're wanting to know Jack Lawrence's relationship 
with Jack Ruby at this time. So, <laughs> enter resting. It was therefore concluded that after Bogart viewed a photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald, Bogart believed that this was a photograph of a person who had been at the downtown Lincoln Mercury showroom in Dallas looking at the automobiles there and had driven a car during a demonstration ride. Enter fucking resting. So, according to the FBI polygraph, Al Bogard was telling the truth, folks. Al Bogard was telling the truth. But of course, the FBI can't have Al Bogard telling the truth, can they? Or else Lee Oswald would seem to be somebody that we don't think that he is, which they can't have. So, what's the alternative? Make Al Bogard questionable. And here's how they do it. An administrative follow-up to the uh, polygraph of Al Bogard. By Airtel to Dallas, dated January 15th, the Bureau authorized interview with Al Bogard with the use of polygraph. On January the 24th, 64, Bogard appeared at the Dallas poly, or Dallas office and advised he was willing to be interviewed with the polygraph. He related to Special Agents Arthur Carter and Ray Hall that on Saturday night, January 11th, while working as a manager of the Bent Elbow Tavern in Dallas, Texas, several men came into the tavern and asked to see the manager. And when Bogard appeared, they proceeded to hit him about the head with a beer bottle, then knocked him down and stomped him about the head. He said he had never seen these men before. He could not identify them, and he had no idea why they assaulted him. He said he was hospitalized at Baylor Hospital, Dallas, Texas, for concussion and head cuts from January the 11th to January 18th, 64. So they put this cat in the hospital for a week, stomping a mud hole in his ass. He was treated by Dr. McReynolds since release. He has been taking Dramamine for dizziness and last took this medication at about 11 p.m. on January 23rd, 64. He also advised he was hospitalized at the North Louisiana Sanitarium in Shreveport, Louisiana, following a car wreck in 51 for a fractured skull. He also alleged that on June 6, 59, he had a light heart attack in Shreveport, Louisiana, but did not consult a doctor for two days afterwards. He then contacted a Dr. Sanders of the Sanders Clinic, Kings Highway, Shreveport, who examined him and had an electrocardiogram made, then gave him some pills and told him to go to bed for about a week. Bogard said that since that time, he has had chest pains from time to time. He's an awfully young young man to 
to be having chest pains at this point. Um, you know, we're looking at 40 years old. While he was in the Baylor Hospital at Dallas in January 64, he told his doctor about these pains and another electrocardiogram was made, but his doctor told him that this showed that everything was normal. On January the 24th, 64, Hall telephonically contacted Dr. McReynolds in the Medical Towers building, who advised that as a surgeon, he treated Al Bogard for a head injury at Baylor Hospital in January of 64. He said Bogard had a traumatic injury to the middle ear, which caused his dizziness. He prescribed Dramamine for the dizziness and has not seen Bogard since his release from the hospital. Dr. McReynolds suggested that if Bogard had taken Dramamine at 11 p.m., this medication would probably interfere with a polygraph examination on January 24th, and that the results would be inconclusive. After Bogard complained of chest pains, Dr. McReynolds had an electrocardiogram made, and his study of that showed no previous heart damage or present indication of any heart disorder. He suggested, however, that Dr. Lloyd Conyers be contacted as Dr. Conyers had previously treated Bogard and could furnish more information regarding any heart trouble Bogard might have. Bogard was then advised that he would be contacted later regarding a polygraph examination after he had had an opportunity to recover more fully from his recent hospitalization. So, on January 24th, Ray Hall... Special agent telephonically contacted Lloyd Conyers of the Medical Arts Building in Dallas. Conyers advised he last saw Al Bogard as a patient in September of 63, and Bogard was complaining of a whiplash injury to his neck following an automobile accident. Dr. Conyers' examination showed no basis for such a complaint. Bogard has been to see him a number of times and appears to be a chronic complainer. Dr. Conyers has never found any physical basis for any of his complaints. He once had an electrocardiogram made on Bogard and found no evidence of any heart damage or disease. In view of Bogard's chronic complaints, he has suspected that Bogard may be attempting to fake injuries and collect from insurance companies. However, he knows of no such attempts to defraud any insurance company. Prior to further consideration of a polygraph examination with Bogard, additional investigation into his background is being conducted. So, this is how you make a fella <laughs> seem unreliable when it behooves you for them to be unreliable. I highly doubt, by any of today's standards, that Dramamine would help you uh, pass a lie detector test. I mean, it's just for dizziness. It doesn't, it's not a muscle relaxer. It's not a, uh, opioid. It's, uh, not a stimulant. It's, it's to help with dizziness. So, I don't know, but you can see how they're going here. They're, they're making, this polygraph of Bogard, not reliable information. They can dismiss it, in other words. But that's not good enough. So what else do they do? 
September, or I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> they do a uh, credit check by the FBI on January 30th, 64, the Credit Bureau of Greater Shreveport prepared for the FBI. So it goes to show that Albert is married, Mr. Al Bogard. He's married to Chloe Bogard, and they are believed to be separated with one child. Uh, former employer of Bogard Appliance, appliance sales and service, approximately one year he was the owner. Does the applicant have record of steady employment? Yes. Any suits, judgments, bankruptcies, bankruptcies, see below. Um, own home, rent, or board. Uh, his home is owned. So then they go checking this poor guy's credit. Uh, he owes $125 to the gas company. Has agreed uh, zero pound past due wife is paying on account um i guess with the bank financial institution he owes 712 dollars still owes this amount all past due beauty supplies various years highest credit 90 dollars 30 days currently zero past due financial institution highest credit 1080 i guess it's a credit card uh, 520, $520 on it. He owes December 63 payment due now. Uh, car last date of sale, 1961 repossessed in August of 1963. Voluntary bankruptcy filed in 1960 by Al Bogard salesman, Gordon road. Um, Still owes $22.50 to a signed company. Still owes $39.65 to an insurance company. Still owes $645 plus 8% interest annually uh, to a realty company. Still owes, uh, well, no, he doesn't still owe this. Clothing, $66.85. Owing schedule, $12.55 paid off and $11.56. $35.10 included in bankruptcy. Uh, collection fees, $75 included in bankruptcy. Electric power, $12.43 paid in, in July of 56. And the newspaper, $5.40 paid on, paid in July of 56. Judgments, January 17th, 64, Al Bogard to Merchants Adjust Bureau, $170 plus 5% from July 62 and costs. August 8th, Bogard Al to Lavender Radio and TV Supply, $130 plus legal interest from judicial demand and costs. 12-21-62, Bogard to People's Bank and Trust. For $2,860.91 plus 6% from 712.62 plus 25% attorney fees and costs. 
November 62, Al Bogard to the Bogard Appliance Center or and the Bogard Appliance Center to Toby Catman and Associates Fair Adventure, Adventure Agency, $208 plus 5%. From July of 62, 12% attorney fees and costs paid in full. Albert Bogard to Newspaper Production Company, $722 plus 8% from 762, 25% attorney fees and costs. Suit filed in January 663. Uh, a chlorine Bogard, Isla chlorine Mazelle Bogard versus Al Bogard for separation. I guess Chloe, her name is Chlorine. Wow. So yeah. his wife separated for him from him January 6th to 63. Subject is now reported to be living in Dallas and employed by the downtown Lincoln Mercury. Of Dallas. So our boy Al Bogard, uh, as you can see, has not had a very prosperous uh, life. Of course, the FBI could paint you any way they want you to. And of course, everybody has financial troubles from here and there. Um, but you can kind of see the, the, the course of his life. Um, he was in very bad financial trouble, filed bankruptcy. In 1960, scraping by, um, trying to pay things off, and in early 63, his wife finally files for separation. His car gets repossessed in August of 63, which leaves him uh, in Dallas alone and working for the downtown Lincoln Mercury. Which you can see why he would have been very excited to see this $3,500 sale walk in to his life. But it doesn't. So apparently he was moonlighting at the Bent Elbow Tavern in Dallas. And in early January of 1964, um... He proceeded to get a mud hole stomped in his ass. Um, requiring him to be in the hospital for an entire week. I mean, that's a pretty bad beating, folks. That's life-threatening. To be put in the hospital for a week. Um, which probably didn't add to his... Uh, Money that he's going to owe and owe and owe and owe. Now, poor Al Bogard. Al Bogard passed away, and he's on the, uh, you know, the famous uh, Penn Jones early, early death list. Dying under mysterious circumstances that have had ties to this case, folks. In 1966, on Valentine's Day, February the 14th, Bogard was the salesman at downtown Lincoln Mercury in Dallas who testified that a few weeks before the assassination, a man resembling Oswald and using Oswald's name took a high-speed test drive in one of Bogard's cars. The real Oswald did not know how to drive, allegedly. 
After Kennedy's death, Bogard was severely beaten and hospitalized. Later, he was found dead in his car in Hallsville, Louisiana, a victim of carbon monoxide poisoning. His death was listed as a suicide. So, roughly two and a half years after the assassination, roughly, not even, uh, we have poor Al Bogard turn up dead as a result of a suicide. Now, of course, you know, we can put this all together with, you know, him doing it on Valentine's Day, that this was a message to his uh, ex-wife, who we may have still been pining after. Uh, a gratuitous one last fuck you, bitch. Um, you know, it's hard to say. Or we know that people can be mysteriously murdered and covered up and make things look like a suicide. So we do file that under mysterious death related to those involved somewhat tangentially in the Kennedy assassination. Al Bogard fits right in and he does fit the bill. And I'm not sure the exact date of this, but it comes from the third decade publication by Jerry Rose newsletter, which would cover the 83 to 93 decade. So it's probably sometime in the 80s. An article by Sheldon Inkle, which is probably a nom de plume. Uh wrote a story called Jack Lawrence, Assassin or Fall Guy, which takes us into a whole nother <laughs> crazy, crazy story about the downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership and its employees. So, strap in, folks. Here we go. The downtown Lincoln Mercury was an auto dealership located at 118 East Commerce Street near Industrial in Dallas, Texas. It was less than a half mile west of Daly Plaza where President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was ambushed and killed on November the 22nd, 63. The Warren Commission concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin, firing from the sixth floor of the school book depository, but other gunmen were probably involved. FBI agents reported that the depository was within sight of the downtown Lincoln Mercury showroom. This auto dealership, which had been known as McAllister Lincoln Mercury until just before the assassination, has three known connections to the events of November 22nd, 63. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin, was reported to have appeared in downtown Lincoln Mercury shopping for a car. Retired Air Force Major Phil Willis, who took 27 photographs in Dealey Plaza at the time of the assassination, was then an employee of, you guessed it, the downtown Lincoln Mercury. I did not know that. And another employee of the company has been identified by several assassination researchers as a conspirator and even as one of the assassins who shot at the president. Jack Lawrence. Jack Allen Carroll Lawrence was born to Stanley P. and Arlene Prater Lawrence on September the 1438 in Nashville, Tennessee. What's up, Doug? Down in Nashville. He had 10 brothers and sisters, some of whom were later to disavow him. Jackie attended Washington District High School in Charleston, West Virginia, but he did not graduate. In 1955, Jack Lawrence joined the Air Force. He served as an airman at the Lachlan Parks Wheelis, Wersmite, and Eaglin Air Force Base until his discharge in January of 59. While in the Air Force, a psychiatric test showed Lawrence to have a chronic antisocial personality, which was severe at times. He was rated an expert marksman. Lawrence told the FBI that in January of 59, he was very much in favor of Fidel Castro's actions in Cuba and that he wanted to go to Cuba in order to aid the revolution, but his discharge came too late. Lawrence regarded Castro at that time as a Robin Hood who had liberated Cuba from the depotism of Batista. By 63, however, Lawrence was opposed to what Castro stood for and would not help him under any circumstances. It has since been suggested that Lawrence actually did go down to Cuba and did serve in Castro's army. According, according to Lawrence, soon after leaving the Air Force, he embarked on what turned out to be six years of travel across America, working at odd jobs along the way, besides working as a salesman of every description as a house painter, as a dishwasher, and as some kind of microfilm supervisor. Jagger Charles Uwell. Lawrence worked for Hertz Rent-A-Car, did sensitive government work, Jagger Charles Stowell, and even worked on behalf of John F. Kennedy in the 1960 West Virginia primary, or so he would claim by 68. Lawrence found the time to take a GED test at the Kanawha County Board of Education on September 26, 1960, in order to get his high school completion certificate and to marry Linda Carol Hudson, a West Virginia girl. The first of their three children were born in 61. Strangely enough, Lawrence left his wife and child behind 
in West Virginia while he went off on his random travels. This might explain why his in-laws came to despise him. He would later boast to have been in every state in the country. According to Lawrence, he spent all of 62 and 63, and part of 63, in Florida, where he worked for Morrison's Cafeteria and Electronic Communications Incorporated, both in St. Pete and for Forsyth Advertising in Fort Lauderdale. Lawrence then spent some time, quote, unemployed in St. Petersburg and back in Charleston, West Virginia, before working for Sears Roebuck in Charleston from May to September of 63. Lee Harvey Oswald checked into the Dallas YMCA on October the 3rd, 1963. Jack Lawrence checked into the Dallas YMCA on October the 6th, answering an ad for employment placed by downtown Lincoln Mercury. Lawrence told assistant sales manager Frank Pizzo that he'd been stranded in Dallas when his car broke down on the way from Florida to California and that he had had to sell the car. Actually, it had been repossessed. So that's a lie. He presented excellent references from a New Orleans auto dealership and was hired, his employment commencing on October 22nd. Lawrence had to file an application for a bond with the Liberty Mutual. Lee Moo E Moo. He gave his social security number and he cited several references. Blah 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 blah. Uh, Lawrence references, however, did not answer correspondence sent to them by the downtown Lincoln Mercury. Lawrence shared an office with Orrin Paul Brown, who we heard from before, who had also worked in New Orleans. Lawrence told Brown that he had worked at at a Chevrolet dealership on Karen Dellett Street, uh, two blocks away from Canal Street. An examination of a New Orleans street map would therefore place Lawrence about five blocks away from 544 Camp Street, the headquarters of several suspicious anti-Castro operations, as well as Lee Harvey Oswald's fictitious New Orleans chapter of the pro-Castro Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Brown was not sure if Lawrence had worked in New Orleans immediately prior to his arrival in Dallas, but James Rozell, secretary-treasurer of downtown Lincoln Mercury, stated that Lawrence had come to them via West Virginia, Florida, and New Orleans. It is interesting to note that Oswald and Lawrence checked into the Dallas YMCA three days apart after both had recently left New Orleans. In the month he was to work as a car salesman in Dallas, Lawrence would not sell a single car. And when his New Orleans references were later checked, they turned out to be completely false. He would later tell investigators for uh, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison that he had never been in New Orleans. James Rozell called Lawrence a real nut who caused him a lot of trouble because of his lies. Frank Pizzo referred to the former airman as a real loner who never laughed. Salesman Robert Teeter described Lawrence as an undesirable salesman who was just drifting around the country and who did not mix well with other salesmen or the customers. When Lawrence went drinking with his co-workers, he would emphatically state his political beliefs, some of which were very anti-Castro. Teeter recalled one such evening when he and Jack Lawrence had gone out for a few drinks together. On December 7, 63, Teeter told the FBI that Lawrence had admitted to receiving a bad conduct discharge from the Air Force because he, quote, had tried to help Fidel Castro when Castro first began to fight Batista in Cuba. 
This contradicted Lawrence's official military record and his own later statements to investigators. Like Rizal and Pizzo, Teeter also failed to identify the bar that Lawrence would attend with his fellow salesmen. Was Jack Lawrence a regular visitor to Jack Ruby's Carousel Club, which was east of the downtown Lincoln Mercury at 1310 Commerce Street? According to Beverly Oliver, he was. Oliver was shown a group of photographs by assassination researchers and picked out Jack Lawrence as someone she had seen frequently at the Carousel Club. She also identified Lawrence as a close friend of Jack Ruby's roommate, George Senator. Oliver has made other far more sensational claims, however, which make all her statements of questionable value. Still, she is known to have been a frequent visitor to the carousel herself, and she did identify Jack Lawrence as a carousel regular on the basis of a photograph she would not likely have seen before, not even in assassination literature. Furthermore, an FBI report compiled within weeks of the assassination referred to Lawrence as an alleged associate of Jack Ruby for no readily apparent reason. Which is interesting, folks, because, you know, we might think that Beverly Oliver is full of shit when it comes to her being the babushka lady, um, which I'm sure she was not. But we can put her working in the colony club, which was located uh, very close to the carousel club back in 1963. So it's possible uh, she would have, she could have run into Jack Lawrence at the carousel club. Um, when Lee Harvey Oswald returned to Dallas from his mysterious trip to Mexico city, allegedly, on October the 3rd, 63, he checked into the Dallas YMCA on Irve Street. He stayed there for two days. The Dallas YMCA is 13 stories high. Shortly after the assassination, federal investigators checked out every guest registered at the YMCA during those two days, searching for men who had been in the same place at the same time as Oswald on other occasions, such as in New Orleans in 1963. If the same federal investigators had continued to examine YMCA records past October 4th, they would have found that Jack Lawrence had checked into the YMCA on October 6th. And if they had checked out Jack Lawrence's background, they would have found that he claimed to have worked in New Orleans recently and in close proximity to 544 Camp Street. Lawrence had even wanted to fight for Castro back in 59. Lawrence stayed at the YMCA for almost two months it is known that Jack Ruby frequented the same YMCA's health club facilities during this time. Lawrence was asked about Ruby by the FBI. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. 
void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, Lawrence could spend a total of about two months in Dallas, and he would leave the city shortly after the assassination, a la Larry Crayford. That all of his information on Jack Ruby was general knowledge around Dallas at the time is open to question especially in light of Lawrence's later claim that he knew only one person in Dallas, a Japanese electronics engineer with a name something like Hero. Lawrence also was also asked uh, what he knew about Lee Harvey Oswald, and he replied that he had never known or seen this man and had never heard of him until his arrest after the assassination. Although he only stayed at the YMCA for two days, Oswald apparently set the stage for mail to be delivered to him there for several weeks thereafter. Meanwhile, other mail came to him at other addresses. During early November, Oswald was reported to have seen cashing small money orders at a Western Union in Dallas. On at least one occasion, his place of residence was given as the YMCA. This Oswald was cantankerous, and one Western Union employee described him as being effeminate and very slender. He used a Navy ID release card and a library card as identification and was accompanied by a man of Spanish descent. On one occasion, Oswald sent a small morning order to the Dallas YMCA himself. Was there a second Lee Oswald staying at the YMCA during October and November of 63, getting mail and cashing money orders while the real Lee Oswald assumed the name H.O.H. Lee and moved into the rooming house at 1026 North Beckley? Or did the real Oswald stay at the YMCA while an impersonator moved into Oak Cliff? Lauren Eugene Hall and Lawrence John Howard uh, stayed at the YMCA for six days in October. It has been reported that they checked in on the night of October the 17th and stayed until October the 22nd, 63. These men were deeply involved in anti-Castro activities and organizations as well as being closely associated with an alleged Oswald lookalike named William Houston Seymour. All three of these men are known to have been connected in some way to an important instance of an Oswald impersonation, the visit of, quote, Leon Oswald to Cuban refugee Sylvia Odio at her Dallas home in late September of 63. Can't make this shit up, folks. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. Did anybody get into the uh, the Al Bogard story of Oswald coming to drive the demonstrator? Um, da, 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 da. Bogard was positive the man was in fact Lee Harvey Oswald, Frank Pizzo also remembered the unusual customer, and he felt that while the man did resemble Oswald, his hairline was different. And according to the FBI, Eugene Wilson would later tell him that Oswald, quote, was only five feet tall. In reality, Lee Harvey Oswald was at least five foot nine. 
Furthermore, the Warren Commission found that not only was Oswald unable to drive, but on the day in question, he was allegedly in Irving, Texas, visiting wife Marina at the home of her friend Ruth Payne. Jack Lawrence would, was, would, was later to describe Al Bogard as being an unimaginative and unintelligent man. Lawrence found Orrin Brown to be similar in character to Bogard, and he dismissed Frank Pizzo as a typical Yankee, estimating that you could only believe a tenth of what he said. And yet Lawrence still believed that the Oswald test drive did in fact occur because he regarded Eugene Wilson as being honest and reliable. In 1977, Eugene Wilson told the Dallas Morning News that the man really was Lee Harvey Oswald and that he did know how to drive. Wilson convincingly shifted the incident to November the 2nd, three weeks before the assassination. He could do this because later the day of the test drive, Wilson used the same car to carry his wife and some friends home from a meeting of the Lone Star Bulldog Club. At a Dallas dog show the next day, Wilson's dogs won some ribbons that carried the date. Whether the incident occurred on November 2nd or 9th, the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald was reported by Marina and Ruth to be in Irving on both of those days, coupled with the discrepancies in appearance between Oswald and Bogart's customer, as described by Pizzo and Wilson, seemed to indicate that Lee Harvey Oswald did not test drive a car to downtown Lincoln Mercury, but somebody did. On November 2nd, 1963, a man who gave his name as Lee Oswald and who resembled Lee Oswald and who claimed a financial and employment history similar to Lee Oswald's, visited a car dealership located less than half a mile from where President Kennedy would be assassinated, asked to drive along the same route as the presidential motorcade would take three weeks later, test drove a car in a reckless and memorable manner, expected to receive a, quote, a lot of money in the next two or three weeks, and mentioned that, quote, he might have to go back to Russia. But the man was not Lee Harvey Oswald, although his actions and words did manage to incriminate the real Lee Harvey Oswald. The test drive occurred less than two weeks after Jack Lawrence began working at the downtown Lincoln Mercury. It was also at this time that other such cases of Oswald impersonations were incurring with greater and greater frequency throughout the Dallas area. One week later, Jack Lawrence began making arrangements to leave Dallas. He asked if he could borrow a company car but he didn't want to tell his employers where he was going or why he wanted his pay early. He finally explained to them that he had to make an urgent trip to California for someone. Because Lawrence had no references and his employers knew so little about him, Orrin Brown had to help him in arranging to take a new car to Los Angeles for delivery there. Lawrence planned to leave Dallas on November the 22nd, 1963. On the day of the assassination, November the 22nd, 1963, accounts of Lawrence's actions on the day of the assassination conflict slightly, but they all agree on the key details. Jack Lawrence was not at work for some time before, during, and immediately after the assassination. Researchers who later constructed reconstructed events based on interviews with downtown Lincoln Mercury employees concluded that Lawrence borrowed a company car on Thursday, November the 21st, November the 21st, claiming that he had a hot and heavy date that night. He did not report to work the next morning. His employers began to worry about the car. And fuck Jack. Lawrence, where's my car? Possibly because they knew he planned to leave for California that weekend. 
In an FBI interview on September the 14th, 1964, Lawrence told them that on the morning of the assassination, he did not feel well because he had been out late the night before. Lawrence claimed that he did attend a sales meeting that morning, but he left afterwards, taking his assigned demonstrator back to the YMCA so he could get some rest. Uh, but Jack Lawrence was never assigned a demonstrator. In 1967, James Rozell seemed to verify Lawrence's presence at the dealership before the assassination when he related that Lawrence left work for the, from the, for the YMCA that morning saying he was sick. The car he was driving was a 64 model white Comet. Lawrence told the FBI that he tried to return to work afternoon, following the same route that the motorcade had taken, but when he approached Dealey Plaza, the police stopped all traffic and he had to park the car. Lawrence walked the rest of the way. He said he was nervous because he had been out on the town the night before, and because of the shock of learning of the president's assassination, in 1968, Lawrence told Garrison investigators that he was actually only two or three cars behind the last car of the motorcade. When he was less than two blocks away from Dealey Plaza, he supposedly heard four shots, evenly spaced and fired rapidly as though from a 7mm heavy caliber weapon, and all shots apparently coming from the same direction. Lawrence then parked his car on Main Street and walked into Dealey Plaza arriving there about three minutes after the shooting. Lawrence contended that he then walked on to downtown Lincoln Mercury. But Jack Lawrence was lying about this. Besides the unlikelihood of his claim that he could actually tell that all the shots came from the same direction when he was inside a car and more than a block away, several films and photographs clearly show that the police did not stop traffic for some time after the shooting. There would be no reason for Lawrence to abandon his car. It is also known that he did not park it on Main Street. As for milling around after the assassination, Lawrence has yet to appear in any of the numerous photographs and films taken in Dealey Plaza after the shooting. As for being upset about the president being assassinated, at the time Lawrence returned to work, the severity of the wounds sustained by the president was unknown, although some of the closer witnesses suspected the worst. Was Jack Lawrence one of those witnesses? About 30 minutes after the assassination, Lawrence hurried into the showroom. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Out of breath. Pale. Sweating profusely. There was mud on his clothes. He was wearing a white shirt with no jacket. And he looked very worried. 
he ran immediately to the restroom and threw up. According to Oren Brown, Lawrence at first tried to call his parents, but he could not get through, so he sent a telegram. According to James Rozelle, Lawrence at first told them that he did not know where the car was, but he eventually admitted that he had to park the car because of the traffic. There were 15 or 16 salesmen present in the showroom that afternoon, listening to the radio for news of the assassination. Frank Pizzo recalled that it was about 4 or 5 o'clock when Lee Harvey Oswald was named in the radio reports as a suspect in the shooting of Officer Tippett. Several salesmen heard Bogart comment that Oswald would no longer want to buy a car, and one of them mentioned this to Frank Pizzo, but the assistant manager did not realize that Bogart meant that Oswald had actually been one of his prospective clients. The showroom was very large, about 350 feet long, and few of the salesmen present saw Bogart taking the business card with Oswald's name on it out of his pocket, tearing it up and throwing it away. When two employees went to retrieve the car that Lawrence had abandoned, they found it parked behind the stockade fence in the parking lot of the grassy knoll, overlooking the assassination site. Traffic into the parking lot on the grassy knoll were supposedly cut off at 10 a.m., at which time the lot was already jammed with cars of people who had come to see the motorcade. According to Dallas Deputy Roger Craig, only deputies with keys had access to the lot, which had an iron bar with a chain and a lock on it across the only entrance, which was also the only exit. Still, radio or railroad tower man Lee Bowers saw three suspicious cars move through the lot from just before noon to approximately 1225. None of them was a white comet, however, and none of the cars stayed. When did Lawrence park his borrowed car in the parking lot? Was it before 10 o'clock? If so, exactly what was he doing until his dramatic entrance at the downtown Lincoln Mercury 30 minutes after the assassination? As a result of an acoustical analysis of the DPD Dictabelt recording, the HSCA concluded that a gunman had fired at least one shot from behind the stockade fence very close to the place where Bauer saw two unfamiliar men and a flash of light or smoke or something, where more than seven witnesses saw a puff of smoke, from where the majority of the witnesses thought the shots had originated, and where policemen and deputy sheriffs were directed to investigate where Patrolman Joe Marshall Smith smelled exploded gunpowder, and where numerous footprints and cigarette butts were found behind a car, as if a man had been pacing back and forth where muddy footprints were found on the car's bumper and on the fence railing, as if someone had been standing on them to look over the fence, and where, in a photograph taken by Mary Mormon at the moment of the fatal shot, what seems to be a man's head appear. Is this a picture of Jack Lawrence, the lying car salesman? The car he borrowed was found parked along the same section of the stockade fence, quote, close to the railroad tracks. Lawrence had mud on his clothes when he returned to work after the assassination, and he was not wearing a jacket. Later that afternoon, an abandoned overcoat was found near Industrial Boulevard between Dealey Plaza and downtown Lincoln Mercury. Hmm. If the gunman, visible in the Mormon photograph, is not Jack Lawrence, however, it is nevertheless likely that he does appear in the same photo just a short distance away. The Mormon photograph shows three men standing on the steps leading up the grassy knoll at the moment of the fatal shot. Only one of them 
Dealey Plaza groundskeeper Emmett Hudson has been officially identified. In his Warren Commission testimony, Hudson only mentioned one of the other men. Well, there was a young fella. Oh, I would judge his age about in his late 20s. He said he had been looking for a place to park. He finally had just taken a place over there in one of them parking lots. And he came on down there and said he worked over there on industrial. And me and him both just sat down there first on those steps. Uh, when the motorcade turned off of Houston on the Elm, we got up, stood up. Me and him both. He was on the left side and I was on the right side. And so the first shot rung out. And of course, I didn't realize it was a shot. I'll tell you, this young fella that was standing there with me, he says, lay down, mister. Somebody's shooting the president. He says, lay down, lay down. And he kept on repeating, lay down. So he was already laying down one way on the sidewalk. So I just laid down over on the ground and resting my arm on the ground. When that third shot rung out, you could tell the shot was coming from above and kind of behind. As seen in a film taken by Orville Nix, the man on Hudson's left did not lie down, but instead turned and ran up the stairs less than two and a half seconds after the fatal headshot towards the location from where the shot came, only to vanish into the shadows of the grassy knoll. The man on the steps below Hudson was the one who hit the dirt. He rose to his feet about 40 seconds after the headshot and walked away, apparently west along the knoll in front of the stockade fence. This man disappears from the known photographic record about five seconds after the headshot. It has generally been assumed that the young fellow was the man on the steps below Hudson, and the man besides the groundskeeper had arrived there only moments before the fatal headshot. A close examination of the photographic record, however, shows conclusively that the young fellow was the man beside Hudson standing on the very same step. Hudson himself stated that the young fellow was standing to his left. It is hard to believe that Hudson would instead be talking to a man who, who had his back squarely to him and was standing three steps below him. In the middle of the assassination of the president, uh, it does not seem unlikely that Hudson would confuse the actions of two men whom he had never seen before and would never see again. Hudson described the young fellow as being in his late 20s. Jack Lawrence was 25 at the time. The young fellow worked on industrial. Lawrence worked on commerce and industrial. The young fellow had just parked his car in the lot on top of the knoll. Lawrence parked his borrowed car in the same lot. The young, quote, young fellow was never identified. And Lawrence's own account of his whereabouts at the time of the assassination is extremely unconvincing. The young fellow, slim, dark-haired, and possibly wearing a white shirt, also fits the description of Jack Lawrence. And his hurried exit in the direction of the parking lot is consistent with Lawrence showing up at the downtown Lincoln Mercury with mud on his clothes and out of breath. It would seem that Lawrence was the young fellow. And ironically enough, in his position on the steps, he shows up in the famous slide taken by his co-worker, Phil Willis. <laughs> Can't make this shit up, folks. This scenario would have Lawrence parking his car behind the stockade fence sometime before the assassination and taking up a position on the grassy knoll steps, where he would engage in conversation with Emmett Hudson perhaps to distract the groundskeeper so he wouldn't notice assassins moving into place behind him. Once the shooting started, Lawrence ordered Houston to the ground and fled. 
The other man on the steps also hit the dirt, and Hudson, stunned by the events he had just witnessed, failed to notice that Lawrence was gone. In any case, the other man had also gone in less than a minute, and Hudson was on his way into the parking lot along with other witnesses. By this time, Lawrence had reached his car, but the sight of people rushing into the parking lot in pursuit of assassins had panicked him, and he fled on foot for the downtown Lincoln Mercury. Suspicious of Jack Lawrence on the afternoon of the assassination, Frank Pizzo called James Roselle. Since the owner of downtown Lincoln Mercury was away on a hunting trip at the time and asked the secretary treasurer if he should call the police. Roselle thought he should. The Dallas police took Lawrence in for questioning, held him overnight, and released him the next day. Lawrence was angered by his incarceration, and he threatened to sue. He wanted to know who told the police about him. That morning, one of the salesmen told Frank Pizzo that Oswald had actually been one of Bogard's customers. Pizzo instigated a fruitless search for the business card with Oswald's name on it. A discussion ensued between Bogard and Pizzo, but they decided not to report their encounter with Oswald to the authorities. In an FBI interview, Jack Lawrence said that he told Mr. Bogard and Pizzo that they should call the FBI and give them this information because everyone should cooperate in helping to clear up this matter. According to Lawrence, this suggestion seemed to make Bogard nervous, and he walked off without making the call. Lawrence claimed to have told Rizzo that he was going to call the FBI himself, and that Pizzo was in favor of this. At 11 a.m. on Saturday morning, Jack Lawrence phoned the Dallas FBI office and notified them that a person he believed to have been Lee Harvey Oswald had recently appeared at downtown Lincoln Mercury. This individual expected to have cash and sufficient amount to purchase an automobile within a couple weeks. Lawrence reported the incident because those who knew of it firsthand would not report it, and he felt that all such information should be reported. Lawrence quoted Bogard as saying that Oswald had asked to be driven along the same route that the upcoming presidential motorcade would take. According to Lawrence, Pizzo turned out to be angry with him for making the call. Robert Teeter told Pizzo that Lawrence had received a bad conduct discharge from the Air Force because he tried to fight for Castro. According to Pizzo, Lawrence was fired because of this. Teeter told the FBI that Lawrence was let go because he just did not work out and was not the type salesman the company liked to have working for them. According to Lawrence, shortly after he made his phone call to the FBI, he was called into the office of the owner, William Fowler. Fowler had a check for Lawrence, and he told him that his services had been good and that they would like to keep him, and since he had already been, since he had already given notice and had decided to leave in a few days, they felt it was best that he leave then, and he was paying Mr. Lawrence what was due him. Lawrence contended that he had planned to stay on to the, till the end of the month. Uh, according to Orrin Brown, Lawrence never did collect the money that the company owed him, which was strange because he had seemed to be chronically short of funds. Most accounts have Lawrence leaving Dallas on November the 23rd, but YMCA records show that he did not check out until November 30th. In any event, he resurfaced at the home of his parents-in-law in South Charleston, West Virginia, uh, in time to be interviewed by the FBI on December 1163. The FBI began investigating the Oswald test drive immediately, Bogard was interviewed for the first time on the very day of Jack Lawrence's call to the FBI. On November the 22nd, a customer was overheard 
A customer had overheard the salesman discussing Lawrence and the car behind the fence. This customer flew to Chicago that weekend and repeated the story in a Chicago bar. Early Monday morning, five or six FBI agents from Chicago arrived at downtown Lake and Mercury. They confiscated all the company records on Lawrence and never returned them. Frank Pizzo was apparently interviewed twice by a pair of Chicago agents that day, but these interviews did not become commission exhibits and have yet to be made public. The FBI was not alone in its investigation. NBC correspondent Tom Pettit, cameraman Gene Barnes, and sound technician Ted Mann flew to Shreveport, Louisiana, and recorded a lengthy interview about the Oswald test drive with Al Bogard within days of the assassination. Pettit quoted Bogard as stating that Jack Lawrence, a former salesman, had considerable additional information in this regard. On November the 26th, an unidentified NBC rep contacted the passport office at the Department of State seeking to identify from passport files one Jack Lawrence of Dallas, born 1939, an alleged associate of Jack Ruby, but no information was located concerning Lawrence. The passport office reported this inquiry to the FBI on the next day. Tom Pettit did track Lawrence down for an interview shortly after the assassination. On December the 5th, Pizzo was once again questioned by the FBI in regard to Lawrence. Uh, the FBI checked the YMCA for information on Lawrence, and on December 7th, Robert Teeter was questioned about Lawrence's bad conduct discharge. On December the 9th, the FBI once again interviewed Bogart about Oswald, and on the next day, both Orrin Brown and his wife were interviewed. On the evening of November 22nd, Brown's wife had asked her husband what he knew of Lee Harvey Oswald since she had found a piece of paper with Oswald's name on it in their home. Finally, on December the 11th, 63, the FBI located Jack Lawrence. Judging from his reported statements, Lawrence was asked about his relationships to Jack Ruby, Lee Oswald, and Fidel Castro. Uh, Frank Pizzo was interviewed yet again on January the 8th, 64, but like his other interviews, this one too failed to become a commission exhibit. This interview has also yet to surface. On February 24th, 1964, Al Bogart submitted to a polygraph test at the request of the FBI. The results indicated that Bogart was telling the truth about his encounter with Lee Oswald. Warren Commission Counsel Albert Jenner questioned Pizzo on March 31, 64. In his brief testimony, Pizzo was asked only about Oswald and Bogart, and Jenner did not pursue the matter of FBI interviews he knew nothing about, the ones conducted by the Chicago agents on the 25th or 26th of November. Pizzo failed to even mention Jack Lawrence, although it should be noted that part of his testimony was, quote, off the record. At the end of Pizzo's testimony, Jenner made an interesting request. I have attempted to locate Mr. Bogart just by calling around this morning, but I haven't been able to run him down yet. If you get anywhere on where I might reach him, I would appreciate your telling me. I don't mean to suggest that he's trying to escape or anything, but quite the contrary, I just haven't been able to reach him. Well, Bogard was located, and he appeared before Commission Counsel Joseph Ball on April 8, 64. His testimony was very brief, and he was asked only about the Oswald incident. Since Lawrence had caused such trouble for downtown Lincoln Mercury and Bogard had specifically mentioned Lawrence to NBC's Tom Pettit less than five months earlier, his testimony regarding Lawrence is hard to believe. Short Mr. Ball says, shortly after the death of President Kennedy, you notified the FBI, didn't you? 
Bogart says, I did not notify the FBI. Ball says, did you notify someone that you had information? Bogart said, was the other salesman notified the FBI? Ball said, who was he? Bogart said, I forget the name. Ball says, but he notified the FBI that you had some information? Bogard, yes. When asked who was present when he produced a business card with Oswald's name on it, Bogard answered, oh, I think Warren Brown was there, Mr. Wilson was there, and this other little boy. He hadn't been there very long. I can't remember his name at this time right now. Ball responded, Warren Brown and Wilson? And that was as close as Bogard came to naming Jack Lawrence in his testimony. The little boy. Ten years younger than him, but he was a little boy. Um, the Warren Commission questioned none of the other salesmen, but in a letter dated September 1st, 64, they requested that the FBI investigate further. Once again, Bogard proved hard to find. Bogard is reportedly no longer in Dallas, and efforts are continuing to locate him for an interview. The FBI interviewed Gene Wilson and Bob Teeter on September the 8th and Orrin Brown on the 9th. Even though Brown had not seen Oswald himself, that was all the FBI was interested in. They told him to, uh, quote, forget about Jack Lawrence. According to the FBI, Teeter was doing just that. Uh, he could no longer recall whether or not he told Pizzo about, about Lawrence admitting to his bad conduct discharge from the Air Force. He said he could have told Pizzo about it, and may very well have, but just does not now remember specifically whether he did or not. Jack Lawrence was re-interviewed on September the 14th, 64, that the FBI still had suspicions concerning Lawrence's actions on November 22nd is evident in their report of the interview. Besides talking about Oswald, Lawrence explained how the car he borrowed had ended up near Daly Plaza and why he was so, quote, nervous on the day of the assassination. He was once again asked the reasons for his early dismissal, and he stated that Pizzo must have told Fowler about his call to the FBI, and that was why he was fired. Finally, Bogard was located on September 17th for what was at the very least his fifth interview by authorities. He was in the Dallas County Jail, being held on charges of passing worthless checks and theft by conversion. Bogard maintained that the test drive did in fact occur, but his luck was not going to get any better. Despite the fact that Bogard had passed a lie detector test and that the statements of four other people tended to support his claims, the Warren Commission found his story doubtful and refused to credit it. On April the 4th, 66, Orrin Brown told Mark Lane, You know, I am afraid to talk. Bogard was beaten by some men so badly, he was left in the hospital for some time, and this was after he testified. Then he left town suddenly, and I haven't heard about from him or about him since. I think he may have seen something important, and I think there are some who don't want us to talk about it. Unbeknownst to Brown, Al Bogard had been found dead at the Hallsville Cemetery in Hallsville, Louisiana on February the 14th, 1966. He was 41 years old and was engaged to marry a Dallas woman. A hose had been connected to the exhaust on his car with the other end inside of his car. Bogard was in the car as well, with windows rolled up, and it was ruled a suicide. In 1968, Jack Lawrence would remark that he did not believe Bogard had killed himself, since Bogard was, quote, totally incapable of suicide. 
what exactly Bogard meant when he told Tom Pettit that Jack Lawrence had considerable information about the Oswald test drive will probably never be known. So, he wasn't uh, lamenting a former his his former wife Chloe uh, on Valentine's Day, nineteen sixty six, when he was found dead. He was actually engaged to marry another Dallas woman at the time. So, uh, you know, with your personal life in shit and shambles, you know, but it's things are starting to look up. You know, you found a new, a new, a new boo, and yeah, doesn't sound like somebody who would be hell bent on killing themselves. Jack Lawrence eventually settled down in South Charleston with his wife and children, two sons and a daughter. In September of '66, he enrolled at West Virginia State College, majoring in political science. He was paid $130 a month to attend college as part of a government program to make up for the fact that he had spent his college years in the military. As of 1968, Lawrence was working part-time in the sports department of a Kmart store selling guns. His wife also worked there part-time. His burning ambition was to get involved in politics. He wanted to be a congressman. Lawrence, a dedicated right-winger, wrote and lectured about the right-wing, distributed his, his articles and talking to student groups at West Virginia State College. He also took part in debates against such perceived threats as the Black Power Movement, and he planned to vote for Richard Nixon. Lawrence was once a member of the John Birch Society, but he claimed to be no longer connected to any right-wing group. He had a large collection of books, including biographies, history books, and collections of poetry. Many of his books were described as being of the, quote, you can trust a communist to be a communist, quote, variety. He read everything he could find on communism. Lawrence described his philosophy as being totally anti-liberal and strongly nationalistic. He suggested cutting off foreign aid. If the liberals continue as they have in the past, force will be necessary in the next seven or eight years, he cautioned. Confidential informants did not seem to like Jack Lawrence very much. One remarked that, quote, causes were his whole life. Although he claimed to know nothing about the events in Dallas other than what FBI reports on him revealed, Lawrence dismissed the Warren Commission as a left-wing conspiracy to conceal the truth of a Castro-inspired plot. When asked about the Garrison investigation by a Garrison investigator posing as a reporter, Lawrence remarked that it should be investigated itself. He found it suspicious that only right-wingers were being indicted. It seems Lawrence had no idea that Garrison was investigating him at the time. Regardless, the investigators found Lawrence to be intelligent, articulate, self-possessed, with a fairly high opinion of himself, lacking in a sense of humor, and by and large truthful. His version of what happened on that day of the assassination struck them as being a, quote, honest account. It should come as no surprise that during the interview, Lawrence demonstrably lied or contradicted his earlier statements at least nine times. For example, he contended that the FBI contacted him on November 23, 63, whereupon he informed them of the Oswald visit. He also failed to mention that his co-workers suspected him of playing some role in the assassination. Interviewed ten months later, Lawrence ended that interview abruptly by saying that, quote, he hoped I would tell him if I ever found out what I wanted to know, unquote, and walking away. So, 
Was Jack Lawrence really nothing more than a drifter who happened to find himself drawn into the events surrounding the assassination by sheer coincidence? Or was he the assassin behind the stockade fence? Was he a witness who didn't want to get involved and therefore denied that he had been on the scene of the crime? If it was Lawrence who ran into the parking lot just after the headshot, did he see something behind that fence that he wasn't supposed to see? Has his fear made him look suspicious? Or was he stationed on the grassy knoll to deflect attention away from his fellow conspirators? Was he a getaway driver for the assassins? There was a white car straddling the log barrier in the parking lot that was filmed leaving the scene of the crime a minute after the assassination. Perhaps Lawrence impersonated Buell Frazier before the assassination as a part of the plot. What? Yeah, you heard me right. In an earlier article, it was suggested that Buell Frazier was a potential patsy who would have been implicated in the assassination if the crime could not be pinned on Oswald alone. It was further suggested that since Lee Harvey Oswald had been impersonated prior to the assassination, the conspirators would also have impersonated Buell Wesley Frazier in order to incriminate him as well. Since Frazier never attended, attained the notoriety that Oswald did, people who had encountered the second Frazier attached no significance to him and therefore did not report him to the authorities after the assassination, except in one instance. Beginning a few weeks before the assassination and lasting until November 20th, 63, a man who resembled Lee Harvey Oswald was seen at Dallas and Irving rifle ranges by more than 10 people. His rifle was equipped with a telescopic sight, and he always picked up all of the used shell casings to take with him when he left. He was an excellent shot, and on one occasion the man fired at Garland Slack's target, and when Slack expressed his displeasure, quote, Oswald, gave him a look that he would never forget. Slack mentioned that Oswald had been brought to the rifle range by a man named Frazier from Irving, Texas. The real Oswald's known whereabouts indicate that he was not there, and Buell Frazier denied accompanying Oswald to any rifle range. In all likelihood, Frazier was telling the truth. He was probably a victim of impersonation. Was Jack Lawrence the second Frazier? At the time of the assassination, Buell Frazier was a 19-year-old man with black hair and brown eyes, who was about five foot eleven. Jack Lawrence was twenty-five, stood five foot nine, and had dark hair and brown eyes. Both men had slight builds, and they did bear a facial resemblance to each other. Frazier lived in Irving, and when asked about Irving in a different context, Lawrence replied in sixty-eight that he had been in Irving many times because he worked in Dallas. The question about Irving was the only one that brought a change of expression to Lawrence's face during that particular interview. Why a Dallas car salesman who spent a total of two months in Dallas did not have a car and by his own admission knew no, knew no one outside of work should be in Irving many times is not immediately apparent. Whether or not Jack Lawrence was doubling as Beale Frazier prior to the assassination, however, can only be speculated at this point. I believe that Jack Lawrence was part of the conspiracy that killed President Kennedy, and I do not think that he fired any shots that day. I believe he was standing on the steps with Emmett Hudson, acting as a lookout man. Another one of his duties was to make sure that everybody found out about the incriminating, quote, Oswald test drive. If, however, the route of the motorcade had been different, then I believe Jack Lawrence would have been shooting at the President, would have been shooting at President Kennedy. 
The trademark was accessible from beyond the triple overpass in such a way that it was not necessary to enter the Elm Street ramp to the expressway. The motorcade could have progressed westward through Dealey Plaza on Main, passed under the underpass, and then proceeded on Industrial Boulevard to the trademark. If this route had been followed, the President's car would have been slowing down to turn at the intersection of Commerce and Industrial, instead of in front of the Schoolbook Depository where Lee Oswald and Briel Frazier were working. The downtown Lincoln Mercury, where Jack Lawrence was working, was about 500 feet away from this intersection, conveniently enough. If Jack Lawrence had shot Kennedy at Commerce and Industrial, however, he would not have escaped. A check of nearby businesses by the Dallas police would uncover the fact that Lawrence was the one downtown Lincoln Mercury employee whose whereabouts were unaccounted for. Lawrence would have made almost as good as a fall guy as Oswald did, a loner, an expert marksman with a severe antisocial personality who was unable to maintain meaningful relationships with his wife and family and was supposedly given a bad conduct discharge because he had wanted to fight for Castro. Doesn't this sound remarkably like Lee Oswald's background? Lawrence arrived at, in Dallas at the same time as Oswald with fake job references from New Orleans where Oswald had been living and even checked into the YMCA where Oswald had been staying. A week after Oswald started working along a potential motorcade route, Lawrence started working along another potential motorcade route. Oswald was even supposed to have visited Lawrence's place of work, and both Oswald and Lawrence were reported to have been seen in Jack Ruby's Carousel Club. Lawrence made arrangements to leave Dallas on the afternoon of the assassination and parked his borrowed car in the parking lot behind the grassy knoll. Perhaps he was told to park his car behind the stockade fence and to wait there for instructions, or for something to happen. If it makes no sense for Oswald to leave his rifle and shells on the sixth floor, it also makes no sense for an assassin to leave his car in the parking lot from which he was shooting. Was Jack Lawrence being set up as the fall guy, in case there was a need to apprehend a few co-conspirators? If Oswald was a part of the conspiracy, and he knew that the president was going to be killed, as some researchers believe, then he must have been the most surprised person in Dealey Plaza when a police officer rushed into the building he worked and held a gun on him. It is possible that Lawrence was equally surprised by the gunfire that came from behind him, where he knew he had parked his car. Perhaps he realized that he was being set up. This could explain the panic he was in when he ran into the auto dealership after the assassination. Some things are certain. Jack Lawrence acted very suspiciously before, during and after the assassination, but he was never questioned by the Warren Commission or the HSCA. To this day, former co-workers of Jack Lawrence do not believe the Warren Commission report, simply on the grounds that Lawrence was not properly investigated, and the current whereabouts of Jack Lawrence are unknown. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So, the story of Al Bogard and the downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership and its co-workers and Jack Lawrence weaves a very, very tangled web, folks, of what the fuckery. And for those of you, you know, questioning some of the various suppositions in this article by Sheldon Inkle, I would encourage you to head over to the Mary Farrell Foundation and find this article in the third decade. Um, it was published actually in the July 1991 issue 
and is entitled Jack Lawrence Assassin or Fall Guy and check out the footnotes. It is highly footnoted uh, with corroborating um, documents and interviews and things of this nature. So definitely check it out. But just when you thought, just when you thought it was safe to conclude this podcast, this epic 200th episode of the Lone Gunman Podcast, like Paul Harvey used to say, stay tuned for the rest of the story. Because on, on October the 8th of 1991, <laughs> Jack Lawrence contacted Sheldon Inkle at his home. He spoke with Lawrence for over two hours. They had a lot to talk about. After all, he had accused him in print of taking part in the murder of a United States president. And since then, they have spoken on other occasions and corresponded several times. Someone from Alabama had located Lawrence and contacted him in regards to my article. Upon receiving a copy in the mail and reading it, Lawrence was understandably upset when he phoned me. But he kept his anger in check, was quite cooperative, and even managed to commend me for the extensive footnotes I'd included. What seemed to upset him the most were my statements that some of his family members had disavowed him, that his in-laws despised him, and that he regularly abandoned his family in favor of his travels around the country. Not that he was accused him of shooting the president. Uh, I found Jack Lawrence to be intelligent, articulate, and good-humored. We ran through the entire article over the phone. At one point, I had to insist that I hang up and call him back right away so he would not have to pay for such a lengthy, long-distance call. Lawrence is listed in his local telephone directory under his real name. <laughs> so, what did Jack Lawrence have to say in rebuttal to this inflammatory accusation uh, written about him. So, as for the published allegation that Lawrence was rated as an expert marksman, I can find no documents or interviews to support this statement. Lawrence himself tells me that he had almost failed to become an air policeman because he was such a lousy shot during his training at Parks Air Force Base. At the age of 11, Jackie Lawrence was hit in his left eye with a rock and has been blind in that eye ever since, his vision limited to seeing peripheral light and movement. This would, of course, impair his depth perception. I asked him if he owned a rifle in 63, and he replied that he did not own firearms of any description. After his discharge from the Air Force, Lawrence said he sold magazines for a scam outfit that took advantage of the young people who worked for them, as well as the subscribers. It paid very little. And from March until August of 59, Lawrence worked at Union Carbide as a summer laborer. But West Virginia was chronically depressed and it was hard to find work after that. And since he had little education and no marketable skills, Lawrence worked as a handyman, house painter, dishwasher, and as a gas station attendant in Charleston, where he met Linda Carroll Hudson, no relation to Emmett, in 1959. They were married in April of 60. According to Lawrence, John F. Kennedy signed Jack and Linda's wedding greeting card during a campaign stop at the Indian Mound in South Charleston. 
a young couple who strongly supported Kennedy in the 1960 West Virginia primary, shook hands with Jack and Jackie Kennedy. One of the better jobs Lawrence held was as the supervisor of state records and microfilm at the State Road Commission of West Virginia, transferring road maps to microfilm. This job was lost, however, when the Republicans lost its 1960 election, which would mean that by supporting Kennedy, Lawrence helped put himself out of work. Lawrence and his wife alternated between staying with his parents and her parents until he headed off to Florida in search of employment, leaving Linda temporarily behind. Lawrence planned to send for his family once he found substantial work, but most of his jobs were menial and for minimal wages. During all this time, I love my wife dearly and children, and they love me, he contends. Uh, let's see. Now. He also states that he that he had no links between Lawrence and the anti-Castro trio of Lauren Hall, Lawrence Howard, and William Seymour. I asked Lawrence if he had been involved in any way with anti-Castroites or CIA-related figures during his time in Florida or elsewhere. His reply was, absolutely not. So now we get to Jack Lawrence's version of what happened at the downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership. Mm. So, after selling sewing machines at Sears Roebuck in Charleston from May to September of 63, Lawrence decided to leave West Virginia and work his way to California. He says that he started his journey early in the second week of October 63. He headed out in a 1953 Chrysler and ran out of money by the time he hit Texarkana. He had to pawn a brand new spare tire in exchange for a tank of gas, $5, a bag of peanuts, and a Coke. The car eventually broke down, stranding him in Dallas. Lawrence asked $50, $50 for the car, but was able to get only $35 for it from a used car dealer. He would later see the car on several occasions in Dallas being driven by a family of Mexicans. Lawrence called a cab and asked to be taken to the downtown YMCA. Although the FBI reported that Lawrence checked in to the Dallas Y on October 6th, Lawrence now insists that he checked in on Friday, October 11th. He is certain of this because he remembers entering Dallas during the Columbus Day celebrations when thousands of out-of-towners visiting for the annual football game between Texas and Oklahoma literally closed off the streets of downtown Dallas. The cab driver could only drive Lawrence part of the way to the MCA or to the YMCA. He gave him directions on how to get there by foot. Lawrence remembers spending the following Monday and Tuesday in the Dallas Public Library reading motivational books by Dale Carnegie and Napoleon Hill, as well as how-to sales books by a variety of authors. Lawrence applied for work in Dallas at Sears and at another department store, the name of which he cannot recall, as well as answering an ad for employment placed by downtown Lincoln Mercury. The dealership was advertising for men who had no cars or sales experience because they had wanted to train their new employees to sell the downtown Lincoln Mercury way. Lawrence states that he applied for and received a new car sales position on Wednesday, October 16th, 
Although his manager told the FBI that Lawrence started work on October 22nd, he denies providing references from a New Orleans auto dealership, a statement which has been published several times and which I cannot trace back to one of to any one of Lawrence's co-workers at downtown specifically. Orrin Paul Brown, another salesman, apparently told independent investigators that Lawrence had worked at a Chevy dealership on Karen Dellett Street in New Orleans, two blocks from Canal Street. Brown was reported to have said that he discussed this with Lawrence because he had also worked in New Orleans and that he shared an office with Lawrence. He often used to drive him home after work. Brown was unable to say whether or not Lawrence worked in New Orleans immediately prior to coming to work at downtown Lincoln Mercury. James Rozell, secretary-treasurer of the dealership, was also reported to have said that Lawrence came to them via West Virginia, Florida, and New Orleans. Lawrence maintains that he has never been in New Orleans and that the first time he was ever in Louisiana at all was when he pastored a church in West Monroe, Louisiana in 1978 and 79. Yes, you see, folks, I forgot to tell you, much like Thomas Beckham transformed his life of grifting and con artistry into eventually becoming a rabbi and, uh, quote, doctor of psychology, Jack Lawrence transformed himself into a man of the cloth and a pastor for Christ later in life. Today, Lawrence states that he did not lie on his application and tried his hardest to be a good car salesman. He says that he sold 10 or 12 cars during his stay there and was even the top salesman for two weeks. Now, it has been published that Lawrence sold not a single car in the month he was employed at downtown Lincoln Mercury. But the sources for this statement are again unspecified, and I found that Frank Pizzo, the assistant sales manager who hired Lawrence, described him as, quote, a good salesman to a researcher in 67, which would seem to support Lawrence's version of events. Furthermore, Lawrence claims not to have even shared an office, or more accurately, a booth, with Orrin Brown in the first place. And Lawrence, whose memory on most other points as phenomenal 28 years later, does not even remember James Rozelle, who has made many unfavorable comments about Lawrence in his 1967 interview with the late Alfred Chapman. Rozelle called Lawrence a real nut who caused them a lot of trouble because of his lies. Lawrence did not know any of the office personnel, which is not surprising in a large organization like downtown Lincoln Mercury, he thinks Roselle might have mixed him up with another salesman whom Lawrence did share his booth with. This man had been a professional salesman at other establishments and was raising a ruckus over what he deemed to be an unfair division of sales commissions. Lawrence explains that the normal custom in car sales at that time was for the salesman to earn 25% of the profit on every car sold along with percentages of the interest on loans and of the insurance premiums when the salesman directed the customer to certain lending institutions and insurance agents. The reason that downtown Lincoln Mercury wanted inexperienced salesmen, however, was so that the 25% profit could be split three ways between the salesman and the two sales managers. In addition, the dealership kept the interest in insurance premium percentages. Lawrence did not know any better. 
Lawrence's first booth partner, however, had lied about being inexperienced. He secretly called his deals in to lending institutions and insurance agents. When the managers found out, there was a ferocious argument and the salesman was fired. He left shouting that he would see them in court. Lawrence feels that Roselle may have confused him with this man. Um, after some evening shifts, Lawrence would get a lift back to the YMCA from one of his co-workers. Sometimes they would stop for a drink. Lawrence usually did so with Robert Teeter, William Fowler, and two other salesmen the same age as Lawrence, but whose names he cannot remember. One of them was from Lubbock. They all preferred a little piano bar that Lawrence thinks was on or near Mockingbird Lane. Lawrence did not sell any cars during his first week. The Y let him stay on credit. In his second week, however, he sold three cars, and there was strong potential for four or five more sales the next week. His managers, Pizzo and Teeter, were impressed. After all, they were sharing his profits. And after one of the evening shifts in his second week, Pizzo and Teeter decided to give Lawrence a demonstrator. But only after much debate and soul-searching, Pizzo insisted on the idea and Teeter merely went along with it. They explained to me that I was not to mention this to the owners or office people who had already gone for the day. They said I had not yet been bonded yet because my job application references had not responded. And for this reason, I had not given them a demonstrator. I had not been given a demonstrator. They said they would be in trouble and perhaps jeopardize their jobs if the managers or owners found out. He thinks that this could explain why Teeter later told the FBI that Lawrence had no demonstrator. Pizzo said, hell, kid, you're doing a good job and I trust you. Go cut yourself out a comet. There is no reason for you to be on foot. I selected a pretty little turquoise caliente with white vinyl interior. As for Teeter's contention that Lawrence had told him that he received a bad conduct discharge from the Air Force, Lawrence denies this and points out the implausibility of the whole episode. Why would a new salesman tell one of his bosses something like this, especially when it wasn't true in the first place? Lawrence says that he and Teeter were friends, but he does recall one evening when the two of them were having a drink and he upset Teeter by telling him that he was wasting his potential and frittering his life away as a sales manager in downtown Lincoln Mercury. Uh, on the questionable statements of Beverly Oliver, to the contrary, Lawrence informs me that he never visited Jack Ruby's Carousel Club, nor was he a close friend of Ruby's roommate, George Senator. Lawrence does not know why an FBI report compiled within weeks of the assassination would refer to him as an alleged associate of Jack Ruby. As for the coincidence of Lawrence checking into the same YMCA, which Oswald, Lauren Hall, and Lawrence Howard also stayed at, and which Jack Ruby also frequented for use of its health club facilities. Lawrence explains that he normally checked into the YMCA whenever he arrived in a city looking for work. One could stay at a Y for $15 a week in those days, with a gymnasium and health club, health club privileges thrown in. He had done the same in St. Pete, uh, Florida. Furthermore, Lawrence maintains that he made no acquaintances at the Dallas Y. Lawrence says that if they were at the dealership at the time, then he was not aware of Lee Oswald when he made his memorable appearance there to test drive a car with salesman Al Bogard. We did not pay attention to the other salesman's customers, Lawrence noted. Tell me. Let's see. Hmm. 
Lawrence denies that he had to borrow a company car for the night before the assassination for a heavy date, since he had a demonstrator already and he was happily married. A source who will remain anonymous, however, told me that this was the first time the company had given him a demonstrator. Lawrence states that he went to the piano bar the night of 21st, accompanied by Bill Fowler, Bob Teeter, and possibly the young salesman from Lubbock. Fowler left the bar at 9, Teeter left at 11, and Lawrence left at closing time. Lawrence did not get to bed until after 1 a.m., even though he had to attend a sales meeting for new hires at 7.30 the next morning. Apparently, there were two shifts in downtown. If you worked a morning shift one day, getting off work at 3 p.m., then you could sleep in before working the 1 to 9 evening shift the next day. Having to attend early morning sales meetings, even while working the evening shift, was a sore point among the salesmen. Lawrence was scheduled to work the evening shift the day of the assassination. The morning meeting lasted an hour or so. Naturally enough, Lawrence drove back to the YMCA for some more sleep. I recall tuning into JFK's Fort Worth speech on my way back to the room uh, and thinking to myself, he's going to have to be a little more dynamic than he was presenting himself this morning if he was to be re-elected next year. It was pouring rain, in which I delighted with the prospect of snuggling down in bed on such a dismal, wet November day. In 1967, Rozelle said that Lawrence left work that morning for the Y, saying he was sick. Lawrence now admits that he had a, quote, severe hangover. I awoke a little before noon and began getting ready to go to work. The shower was down the hall from my room. Returning to my room after my shower, I remember my shampoo had been left in the shower stall. So after dressing, I returned to the shower room to retrieve the shampoo, and upon arriving back to the door of the, my room, it was there I heard four sharp, even reports of gunfire. Through the city canyons, a black man in the hallway suggested that some joker watching the Kennedy motorcade was throwing firecrackers. This was my first realization that the motorcade was in the area, and my first emotion was anxiety that the traffic would make me late for work. Lawrence tells me that the four shots he heard came at uniform intervals. Lawrence left the YMCA between 12.35 and 12.40 p.m. He found that as I pulled from the parking lot, where I parked my car across from the Y, onto Irvay and drove a few yards toward Main Street, I encountered gridlock traffic. In anticipation of the motorcade, the police had stopped traffic on Main Street and the connecting arteries. Therefore, after the passing of the motorcade, this dammed-up traffic created a gridlock on the only route I had to get to work. I pulled my car to the curb at the corner of Irve and Maine and proceeded to work about one mile on foot. Lawrence continues, the rain had stopped around, or the rain had stopped, and by noon, it was a glorious, warm, sunny day. People stuck in the traffic jam had their car windows down, and as I walked, the radios in these cars began to announce that the JFK motorcade had been fired upon. The closer I got to Dealey Plaza, the more people on the street confirmed their report. Lawrence walked to Dealey Plaza, which was filled with shock, bewilderment, grief, and anger. Lawrence's current account contains only minor discrepancies with the statement he made to the FBI in 64. It should come as no surprise that the FBI report makes no mention of the four shots being heard. I asked Lawrence outright if he was the young fellow next to Emmett Hudson on the steps leading up the grassy knoll, and he told me he was not. 
Lawrence asked me whether or not there had been any security arrangements made on the grassy knoll, and he seemed genuinely puzzled when I told him there had not been. Lawrence did, did hurry into the downtown Lincoln Mercury showroom about 30 minutes after the assassination so that he would be on time for his one o'clock shift. He calls statements made afterwards by his co-workers to the effect that Lawrence was upset and covered in mud and that he ran to the restroom and threw up drivel and false nonsense. He says that he could have been a bit flushed and warm from the fast-paced walk to work, but Lawrence denies at uh, trying desperately to contact his parents as Orrin Brown would later claim that he did. Casting further doubt upon the claims of Orrin Brown is the fact that he was not even at the dealership when Lawrence made his entrance after the assassination. Brown twice told the FBI that he showed up for work about 3 o'clock that day. Uh, when news of the president's death hit the dealership, a sense of disbelief, shock, and disorientation swept over the showroom. Needless to say, we have no customers that afternoon, and the salesmen and managers glued themselves to the TV and radio and discussed, speculate, and wonder about all day what is happening. Refusing to tell the managers where he left the car doesn't, quote, make any sense. He knew that he had to get the car as soon as possible, though, because he left it in a yellow, no-parking zone and was afraid it might be towed. Lawrence was reluctant, however, to walk a mile back, a block or so from the Y, to get the car. The salesman he was then sharing a booth with offered him a lift. Lawrence says that he cannot now remember this man's name, but he describes him as a retired colonel from California who, for a hobby, wrote novels about the Civil War in such, de in such detail that he would even research the kinds of buttons worn on the soldiers' uniforms. At first, Lawrence could not remember the branch of the military that the colonel had served in, and he described him as a balding man in his mid-forties with wavy, reddish-blonde hair. He would later describe the colonel as being retired from the Air Force, 50 to 55 years old, 5'9 and 5'10, freckles, sandy to red hair that was curly or wavy, and a receding hairline. It could not have been retired Air Force Major Phil Willis, who also worked at downtown Lincoln Mercury, but was otherwise occupied that afternoon, after having taken several photographs in Dealey Plaza at the time of the assassination. Lawrence does not remember Willis, and in return, Willis does not remember Lawrence. It was about 2.30 when the colonel drove Lawrence back to get the car, which Lawrence insists was not parked behind the grassy knoll at all. Lawrence is correct when he points out that if the car was parked in Dealey Plaza, he would not have needed a lift to go out to it. I made myself, or I myself have made this walk, and it takes a little more than five minutes. Lawrence could easily have picked the car up on his way home from work with little bother. Indeed, if he were a conspirator, it would be rather stupid to, leave, to park his car there in the first place, and even more foolish to draw attention to it later. It is also possible, though, that Pizzo and Teeter would be so concerned about the demonstrator they had secretly assigned to Lawrence that they would insist someone drive him back to get it as soon as possible, no matter how close it was parked. So, you see how this works here, folks? You see how it could be quite possible that this tiny pebble rolling down the hill starts to gather moss and become a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger object as it continues down the hill. 
as the stories are told, as people put things together, as people want to imply things and researchers want to uh, find things and, and attribute things to, to different people throughout the years and how stories grow and, you know, tales get taller and all in all, it turns out to be a whole lot of nothing. You know, many believe that the so-called uh, actions of Jack Lawrence might seem a little mysterious or telling, you know, on the afternoon of the 22nd after following the assassination. It wasn't merely a, a matter of a guy being in the wrong place at the wrong time and showing up at the wrong place at the wrong time. And what Jack Lawrence definitely uh, denies that the guys at the downtown Lincoln Mercury found his actions so suspicious that they called the Dallas police and had him arrested on the evening of the 22nd. And that his phone call to the FBI on the 23rd was a retaliation uh, for this. You know, making up this this story about his co-workers and this Oswald's uh, business name on a business card. He says the telephone call uh, on the 23rd is what Lawrence claims started his troubles at downtown Lincoln Mercury. Before this, he contends that he got along fine with Bogart and the other salesman and that he was friends with Teeter and Fowler. The FBI agent on the phone kept Lawrence on the line to relay questions about the Oswald visit to Bogard and managers. Pizzo and Teeter became angry with Lawrence, asking him sarcastically if he thought he was an FBI agent himself. Lawrence feels that they did not want the negative publicity of having their dealership connected with Oswald. His co-workers were upset with him, but Lawrence denies that he was ever reported to the Dallas police, taken into custody, or questioned on the 22nd. He says that they locked the doors at 9 o'clock and that he remained behind with some of the other salesmen playing cards and watching TV before returning to the YMCA. Lawrence came to work the next day to start the morning shift at either 8.30 or 9, and Lawrence was called into Mr. Fowler's office. Fowler gave Lawrence his last check and, with reluctance, fired him because of the call to the FBI and the ensuing arguments between Pizzo, Teeter, Bogard, and Lawrence. Lawrence denies that he left the establishment without collecting money that was due him, and he correctly points out that since a salesman there worked on commission, he would not have been owed money if the rumor that he had never sold a single car was true. Lawrence says that Fowler let him keep his demonstrator until Monday morning. Lawrence turned the keys to Fowler on Monday. He tells me that he did not observe anything out of the ordinary on his last visit to downtown Lincoln Mercury. Lawrence says that he looked unsuccessfully for work in Dallas until the first week in December, whereupon he returned to West Virginia, and an FBI report indicates that Lawrence checked out of the YMCA on November the 30th. In 68, Lawrence claimed to have, to have left Dallas on December the 4th. He now informs me that after leaving the Y, he stayed in the Oak Cliff apartment of a young salesman from Lubbock whose wife had left him until December the 4th. So, 
that explains that. On Commission Document 85, pages 373 to 377, consists of a, of a December 1st, 63rd, or December 1st, 63, FBI interview with Gene Barnes, an NBC cameraman. Strangely enough, the report of this interview was published as Commission Exhibit 2038, with the exception of the last two pages, which were replaced by CE 2039, an FBI report of an interview with a UPI photographer, Isidore Blackman. The fourth and first unpublished page of the Barnes report deals with an interview Barnes reportedly conducted with Lawrence. Jack Lawrence originally advised Barnes on November the 27, 63, that Oswald had received a demonstration ride. Lawrence told Barnes he came from West Virginia, had campaigned there with President Kennedy, had left a wife and two children to come to Dallas in about October, and had been connected with National Aeronautical Space Agency, or NASA, in St. Petersburg, Florida. Barnes said a check with NASA by NBC revealed no knowledge of Lawrence with that agency. Lawrence told Barnes that he was leaving Dallas on November 29th for San Diego for a similar job to the one that he held with NASA. <laughs> Interesting. Lawrence maintains that he did state to many that he hoped for a job in California, similar to the one he had at ECI in Florida, where they did do contract work for NASA. He planned to go to Los Angeles, not San Diego. Lawrence, however, does not recall any interview with Barnes. Was Barnes with Robert McNeil? Lawrence recalls that McNeil was accompanied by a well-dressed gentleman who I remember as being an FBI agent called Cunningham. He did not ask me anything. Was Barnes impersonating an FBI agent? Why was NBC so interested in Jack Lawrence that they would check his background with the passport office in NASA? That they would tell the FBI about him? And one of their cameramen might have even gone as far as to impersonate an FBI agent to talk to him. Why did NBC think that Lawrence was an alleged associate of Jack Ruby? Who told Barnes and Mann about Bogart and Oswald, if not Jack Lawrence? Who led McNeil and possibly Barnes to Lawrence at the YMCA, and why? Lawrence was interviewed by the FBI twice. Pittsburgh agents John Woodruff and Leon Grabin interviewed him in South Charleston on December the 11th, 63, at the home of his parents-in-law. He was re-interviewed in September of 64 by two unnamed FBI agents from Pittsburgh. Lawrence informs me that the second interview was conducted by Woodruff and another agent whose name he cannot recall. They reported Lawrence to have said, contrary to what he told me, that at no time did he see Mr. Bogard take any papers or card out of his pocket and hear him say the name of Oswald was on them. Lawrence expresses the hope that the FBI interviews were perhaps taped, and if these recordings could be located, the entire interviews would reveal his actual statements and their context, thereby clarifying his comments in regards to subjects like Cuba. I asked Lawrence to explain the rumors about him started by Bogard, Brown, Pizzo, Rosal, Teeter, and other employees of downtown Lincoln Mercury. With Bogard and Brown, I believe it was a case of ignorance and a sense of sensationalism and wild speculation. Lawrence responds, he has a very low opinion of these two men in particular. For years, I was only aware of my testimony in the Warren Commission report. When Teeter's testimony was pointed out to me by a fellow uh, college student, I was shocked and taken aback. Indeed, there is anger and hatred expressed there. I cannot account for it. I was angry when I phoned the FBI. 
I chalked it up as momentary, reactive frustration, not the deep-seated bitterness that he expressed to others later. Did he lose his job because of me? The demonstrator thing? I don't know. In addition to his claim that Lawrence had been discharged due to his procaster efforts, Teeter told Rizal that Lawrence had been following him at night and was a political fanatic. Teeter was no longer working in the downtown within two weeks of the assassination, having gone from being an assistant sales manager there to a used car salesman at another dealership. Bogart supposedly committed suicide on February 14, 66. Today, Lawrence comments that people who commit suicide are usually morose and fairly deep, but that Bogard was an extrovert who lived for the moment and was not the type to take his own life. Bogard was also engaged to be married at the time of his death for what seems to have been the third time. Tom Bethel, doing investigative work for Jim Garrison and Jean Campbell, an ex-wife of author Norman Mailer, misrepresented themselves to Lawrence on the morning of January 1268 as reporters doing follow-ups on the Warren Report, who had been assigned one of the volumes which Lawrence appears in. In Bethel's report to Garrison, dated January 17th, Lawrence appeared to have no idea that he was an object of suspicion. According to Bethel, Lawrence had even consented to having his photograph taken, and this is the only picture of Lawrence to have been published in assassination literature. Lawrence told me, however, that he consented to no such thing and that any photographs of, of him were taken without his knowledge. The photo does not appear to be posed. This is only one of nine contradictions between this interview and statements Lawrence made to the FBI. I forwarded a copy of Bethel's memo to Lawrence in the hopes that he could account for these discrepancies. For example, Lawrence does remember saying that Castro at the time of the Cuban Revolution, was the George Washington of his country, not a Robin Hood, as Bethel reported him to say. Uh, and he goes on and on. Bernard Smith compiled a report on Lawrence for Bernard Fensterwald dated October 10, 68. He based his investigation on information provided by three confidential informants two of whom were women who claimed to have known Linda Lawrence before her marriage in an interview with Lawrence himself. The third informant was the source of rumors that Lawrence did not have good relationships with other family members and that he was an expert on guns. I have been told that Smith was almost physically afraid of Jack Lawrence when he interviewed him and said he felt that Lawrence was a very dangerous man. Smith approached Lawrence unannounced while Jack was working at Kmart on the afternoon of October 10, 68. Smith reported that Lawrence was irritable because Smith had made his wife and boss nervous with earlier inquiries about Lawrence. Well, of course. I mean, you know, this guy probably thinks that he's getting stalked for what the hell reason. Um, just, it's so, it's so odd. Just so odd. So now in 1991, Jack Lawrence sent this. I am a 53-year-old man, father of three children, and proud grandfather of five, soon-to-be-six grandchildren. I have been married to the same woman for 32 years. For the past 18 years, I have been a Christian pastor. I became a reverend in 1973, a conservative evangelical who still moves around the country constantly in the normal course of his duties, but has been stationed in the same place for seven years now. I once spent six years in the Gulf of Alaska. It is not surprising that assassination researchers had trouble locating me. Although I'm 
I must also wonder if anyone really tried. Uh, Lawrence wants to escape the image of being a vagabond wherever his parish is, is his home. Indeed, statements made to the contrary seem to be what upset him the most. He feels that he raised his children well and is obviously very proud of them. In 1966, my wife and I made the decision that I would go to college with VA help from the GI Bill. She went to work and I worked 40 hours a week part-time and carried enough semester hours to graduate in four years. I have never been antisocial nor a loner. While in college, I was campus president of College Republicans. I was political editor for the campus newspaper. I ran for state senate in 1970 and state legislature in 1972. I've been vice president of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Southeastern Nebraska, chairman of my denomination state work, president and chair of ecumenical ministers groups. My counseling has saved marriages, caused people to turn from drugs and other destructive lifestyles. I have a close loving relationship with all my brothers and sisters, my parents and in-laws, and I delivered the eulogy for my father-in-law when he died of cancer several years ago. I have served as a hospital chaplain and a college campus advisor and chaplain. My oldest son is an attorney and a former assistant attorney general of our state. He rose to the rank of captain in the Marine Corps. My second son has a master's in education and is presently a pharmaceutical sales rep. He achieved the rank of first lieutenant in the Marine Corps. My daughter was until recently teaching English to foreign students at Western Oregon State College. My children's success is directly related to their home life. By the grace of God, we are a loving family. My point is an antisocial loner drifter could not have accomplished any of the above. And as for his current politics, Jack Lawrence characterizes himself as a conservative Republican along the lines of Edmund Burke and C.S. Lewis. Because Lawrence is a Christian who was once to the far right and had spent time in California, I asked him if he was familiar with Reverend Carl McIntyre or his right-hand man, Edgar Eugene Bradley. I have heard of McIntyre, a right-wing extremist, as I recall. I have not heard, I have not heard of Bradley, was his written reply. Um, so in closing this, Shelton Inkle uh, issues the apology. Issues an apology. I would like to take this opportunity to apologize to Jack Lawrence. I wrote an article for publication which accused him of conspiracy to commit murder. A man I had never met, a man I had never spoken to, accused on the basis of third, fourth, fifth hand, and unsworn testimony. I think it's too easy for we assassination researchers to forget that the suspicious characters we spend so much time studying and theorizing about are real people with real families and real reputations who may in fact be entirely innocent and are without question innocent until proven guilty. I have learned a valuable lesson. I think it is fair for me to present as much information as I can possibly find on Jack Lawrence. If I feel that this information may help us to learn more of the truth surrounding the assassination of President Kennedy, it is also fair for Jack Lawrence to have an opportunity to live without fear and unwarranted public harassment and embarrassment, and to defend himself from any charges that have been made against him if he so desires. To these ends, I have attempted to provide Reverend Lawrence with a forum to answer my charges, and I would ask any other researchers who have questions for him to please relay them through me. I really feel that the greatest disservice 
done to both myself and Reverend Lawrence was perpetrated by the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Although his name had been provided by researchers and published accounts accused him of being involved in the conspiracy to kill President Kennedy, the HSCA did not even question or interview Jack Lawrence, thereby denying him an opportunity to defend himself and to clear his name at the time. It is also apparent that the HSCA did not investigate the claims made against Lawrence in any way, thereby leaving such investigations up to individuals like J. Gary Shaw, Bernard Finsterwald, Bernard Finsterwald, Jim Mars, and myself. And my only aim is to know the truth about what happened in Dallas on November 22, 1963. In the words of Jack Lawrence, Sheldon, I weighed how I should respond long and hard. I was truly shocked at the amount of ink and paper devoted to me by the conspiracy buffs. On the one hand, I, re I reasoned that no response might be best. Only a small group of conspiracy advocates were using my name, terribly misusing, and, well, so what? I decided there is a chance in this heated climate after the JFK movie that my name and all the wild speculation associated with it might become general public fodder, and I needed somewhere to have my story told by me, recorded. I hope that this Kafkaesque experience plays out without destroying me and my family. People like Richard Sprague and Oliver Stone seem to say that truth and facts merely upset their wild, invented theories, and are not as glamorous, are often dull and boring, and certainly would not pay as much. They are the ones who are dangerous to decent people and society. Already, in 1992, some of Jack's fears have almost come true. On page 334 of an early printing of the new bestseller, Double Cross, by Sam and Chuck Giancana, a poor book on the assassination, which has nevertheless been getting a lot of media attention, Jack Lawrence is, is described, along with convicted murderer Charles Harrelson, as a professional killer and top-notch marksman, one of the gangster Carlos Marcello's men. In later printings, Lawrence's name has been deleted, although his name still appears in the index. Undoubtedly, this deletion was for legal considerations. According to Time writer Ron Rosenbaum, the man Jim Gar Garrison had pegged as his grassy knoll shooter was not Jack Lawrence, but instead Curtis Laverne Larry Crayford. While George Lardner wrote that Garrison's choice was really the late Robert Lee Perrin, who had faked his death the year before. In any event, Garrison undoubtedly had an interest in Lawrence. An APB was put out in New Orleans for a Jack Allen Harold Lawrence on January 3rd, 1968, although not for his arrest, but to, quote, locate only for message, unquote. And Fensterwald sent more material on Lawrence to Garrison on October the 10th, 68, before the end of the Shaw trial. The FBI interview with Frank Pizzo, dated January 8th, 64, which I thought was unavailable, is actually an unpublished part of Commission Document 329, pages 77, 78. On January 6, 64, Rozell was interviewed by FBI agents Arthur Carter and Will Griffin. Rozell expressed great suspicions of Jack Lawrence, and he named Pizzo, Fowler, and Teeter as the sources of this suspicion. Rozell made brief mention of that Oswald's test drive as well. Even though the same two agents interviewed Pizzo on that very same day, there was not a single reference to Lawrence in this report. The report of the Pizzo interview deals solely with Oswald and Bogard, 
even though Roselle specifically told them that Bogard had already been interviewed by two pairs of FBI agents. The Pizzo interviews conducted by FBI agents from Chicago on the 25th and 26th of November, however, are still missing. It is also apparent from Pizzo's testimony to the Warren Commission that Commission Counsel had not seen these interviews. I feel that these documents would be worthwhile objectives of a FOIA suit. Pizzo died in early 1991. I have been able to identify 16 employees of the downtown Lincoln Mercury at the time of the assassination. Within a few months, at least 10 of them would no longer be working there. I realized the car salesman would probably be more likely to change jobs frequently, but four of these men were not salesmen, and one of the salesmen had been working there for about 12 years. Why did so many employees leave the dealership at this time? A November the 3rd, 67 report found in the AARC research files dealing with the allegations made by former Dallas Deputy Sheriff Roger Dean Craig mentioned that there was a reference to Jack Lawrence in the newspaper not long after November 24, 63. I know of no such reference, but I would greatly appreciate it if anyone who did know of it would contact me. When Lawrence told me that he had a standard crypto clearance in the Air Force, I thought nothing of it. Since then, however, I have read in two sources that a cryptographic clearance was the highest one granted at the time. I asked Lawrence again about his security clearance, and he wrote back, As far as I know, my passes and badges were marked with general and universal permission to go anywhere on the bases on which I served. I guarded crypto rooms, planning and attack rooms, or war rooms. I guarded Genie MBI missile sites, atomic air-to-air -air warheads, and all of this required top-secret and crypto clearance. Even if Lawrence did have such high security clearance, however, this in itself is not necessarily sinister. But the one question I would like to have answered most of all is this. Who drove Lawrence back to get the car on the day of the assassination? Lawrence tells me that he cannot remember the name of, quote, the colonel. If Lawrence did not park his car behind the fence on the grassy knoll, then it seems reasonable to assume that this element of the Jack Lawrence myth originated with this man. Who was he, and why would he lie about something like that? Hmm. Interesting. And uh, an editor's note. I guess this is from Jerry Rose. Although Jack Lawrence is certainly entitled to the response described by Ankle, I do not feel that Jack Lawrence or any other suspect can be permitted to the last word on Jack Lawrence. Ankle's article is a useful corrective to some of the unsubstantiated claims about Lawrence that have developed over the years. However, Lawrence's own version of events as described by Ankle seems to compromise his credibility in a number of ways, several of which I hope to develop in a future article. For starters, I find it highly unlikely that he heard four or any number of shots fired at Dealey Plaza when he was inside a building a mile away. <clears throat> Given the respective layouts of Dealey Plaza and Maine and Irvy, there is no canyon down which these shots could reverberate, and no other witnesses from that far away has reported hearing any shots, so far as I know. Even more dubious is the story of Lawrence leaving his unauthorized demonstrator car in a no-parking zone near the Y to walk or run to work. Wouldn't he be more worried about being caught with the car if it wound up being towed to a DPD garage than it, him being a few minutes late to work? especially when he had the excuse of the traffic tie-ups. 
Of course, I do not intend these questions as last words on Jack Lawrence, but only, as I have done in the cases of Aubrey Reich and Yuri Nisenko, questions that urge that we continue the dialogue on these interesting people. Ain't that for certain. Well, folks, that's it for this epic Gilgamesh-like tale of the downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership Al Bogard, his associates, and the indemitable Jack Lawrence. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. So get at me, folks. And once again, thank you, thank you, thank you for keeping this show number one in your hearts. This is your boy. Peace.